Hello, I'm Jen. I'm Sophia. I'm Serena. And I'm Luna. And welcome to Every Rom-Com, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedies seriously. Today on Every Rom-Com, we're headed to Tokyo for Sofia Coppola's second feature film, Lost in Translation. We'll talk about expat life, culture shock, and adapting to foreign countries. We'll discuss some of the movie's Tokyo and Kyoto filming locations and recommend some other great stops on a Japanese itinerary. And we'll contend with some of the criticisms of the film while also sharing our appreciation for the 2003 film Lost in Translation. Hey everyone! Hi, Jen. <laughs> Hi, and Sophia and Luna. Yeah, I'm very excited to be here today for today's show for a couple reasons. First, because it's our first four-person show, so that's a lot of people to give perspectives. And secondly, because one of those people is my lovely sister-in-law, Luna Howell. And hi, Luna. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Thank you for having so, me. Oh, man, it's a pleasure to have you. So a little bit of info on Luna, and then we'll ask her some questions. She lives in the Portuguese countryside right now. She is an artist, writer, and spiritual practitioner. And we're doing Lost in Translation today, so this really comes into play. She has a BA in Japanese, an MA in Asian Studies, and she studied in Osaka, Japan, for nine months in 2011 to 2012. And she lived and worked in Minamata, Japan, from 2017 to 2019 as an assistant language teacher on the JET program. So I'm really glad to have her perspective today on the show. So yeah, like, uh, let's, let's ask, let's talk to Luna a little bit. Wow. You got to live and work there. And what was your work? Yeah, I was actually um, an assistant language teacher for English. So I was helping to teach English in public schools I personally got to teach both elementary school and middle school, which was really fun. And uh, yeah, I got to participate in uh, different opportunities for a cultural exchange as well. So that's cool. Where are you from? Uh, <laughs> you I'm actually from and... Lisbon, Portugal. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was just going to ask, where did your interest in Japanese and Asian culture come from or where did it start? So it actually started when I was pretty young. Um, I was exposed to uh, Japanese anime. And uh, just from watching it, I realized that the culture was very different um, from Portuguese culture. And so I started becoming interested. So it just kind of, I went into a spiral. (laughs) I just wanted to learn more. And yeah. you studied, I think, Luna, you studied, I think, at both PSU and Portland. And didn't you study in British Columbia as well? Yeah, I did. I got my BA at PSU. And then I went up to University of British Columbia for my master's degree. So so you were already living in a foreign culture, learning about a different foreign culture. I always thought that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sort of. Uh, my dad is American. So I kind of grew up bilingual and bicultural, so it didn't feel like that big of a shift. But it was interesting, like, as far as the language goes, because 
when I moved to the States, I decided to only start thinking in English. And then there I was learning Japanese. <laughs> nice. Yeah. nice. How, how old were you when you moved to the States? Um, like, I was just about to turn 18. Okay. Wowzers. So yeah, that idea of like, I'm, I'm making a conscious decision to speak in English. I'm like, wow, would a kid do that? Or like, <laughs> so that was, oh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And um, Luna, can you tell us a little bit about Minamata? I think I'm saying it right. Minamata, the place where yeah. you were working. Yeah, definitely. It It's a beautiful place in southern Japan, the southern island of Kyushu. Um, it's in Kumamoto Prefecture, actually. And Minamata is actually famous for Minamata disease, which was a terrible um, historical incident in which a lot of people got poisoned with mercury because it was being dumped by a chemical factory um, into the water. And mm-hmm. so there's actually a movie with Johnny Depp, uh, I think that just came out or is about to come out. So it's it's nice because it brings some exposure to Minamata. And uh, yeah, it's just really a lovely place with, with really kind people. So I'd like to see more more people go to that part of Japan. Yeah, a very different part of Japan than Tokyo that we're dealing with yeah. in the today. Yeah, I'm wondering if you spent much time in Tokyo. I mean, Osaka is also a big city where you studied, mm-hmm. but like, did you get a chance to spend much time in Tokyo or Kyoto or other parts of Japan? Yes, actually, I did. Uh, this last time while I was working in Minamata, I, I ended up going quite a few times to Tokyo. And I have to say, I really love it. So um, I, I can feel the passion uh, that I think Sofia Coppola is trying to convey mm. for the city. Cool, cool. Cool. So we'll definitely hear more about your perspective like throughout the show. Do you, anyone else have a question before we keep moving on or? No. Not yet. Okay. Yeah, we'll <laughs> definitely hear more about Luna's life and, and job in Japan, I think, throughout the show today. But in the meantime, if you want to find out more about Luna's work, she does artwork, which is very beautiful. You can go to www.lunahowell.com. And you can also find her on Instagram at Luna Thea Howell. And you can find out this information in the show notes, too. I'll have it listed there so you can look her up. And before we get started with Lost in Translation, we'll give you a few reminders. The first section of the show will be spoiler-free, and we'll give you a warning when we're, when we're about to discuss spoilers. We'd also like to let you know that you can follow the podcast on social media. Our Facebook page is Every Romcom Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at Every Romcom, and our Twitter handle is at Every Romcom Pod. And as always, you can find the podcast at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. And now we're going to hear part of the trailer for Lost in Translation. For relaxing times, make it Centauri time. Cut, 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 cut! Is that everything? I mean, it seemed like you said more than that. Mr. Bob Hollis! You're a movie star. Yes, I should be doing movies. Yeah. You know Lat Pack? Rat Rat Pack? Rat Pack. A ring a ding ding. Mr. Harris, Mr. Kazo sent me. My stockings. 
Lip them. What? Hey, lip my fucking. Lip them. What? What are you doing? My husband's a photographer, so he's here working. He wasn't doing anything, so I came along. What do you do? I'm not sure yet, actually. What are you doing here? Getting paid two million dollars to endorse a whiskey. The good news is the whiskey works. Can you keep a secret? I'm trying to organize a prison break. <laughs> We'd have to first get out of this bar, then the city, and then the country. Are you in or are you out? I'm in. How are you? I'm Bob. Bob. You're probably just uh, having a midlife crisis. Did you buy a Porsche yet? You know, I was thinking about buying a Porsche. <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to be. You'll figure that out. The more you know who you are and what you want, the less you let things upset you. Lost in Translation from 2003, written and directed by Sofia Coppola. I love her name, even though we spell it differently. Um, <laughs> so, fun facts. Um, they shot this film in 27 days. She had a budget of $4 million and it grossed $119 million. Most of the crew um, was from Japan and spoke Japanese. Um, and uh, Coppola did not speak Japanese. So it was like art imitating life, life <laughs> imitating art. And Sofia Coppola won the Oscar for Best uh, Original Screenplay. The film was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Director. And it won Golden Globes for Best Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical, and Best Actor, and Best Screenplay. Yay. And the basic premise of the movie is Charlotte is a recent college graduate, and she's accompanied her photographer husband on his business trip to Japan. And she's feeling a bit lonely and perhaps you might say lost. And then meanwhile, Bob Harris is an aging American movie star, and he's also arrived in Japan to do promotional work for Suntory Whiskey. And the two main characters end up meeting at a five-star Tokyo hotel where they're both staying and they begin hanging out together. They kind of share a sense of humor and a sense of alienation from their surroundings. And so, yeah, a lot of the film just revolves around their interactions. So in terms of this movie, I think we've, I think this may be a movie where we all saw it when it came, when it came out or am I mistaken? I totally no, saw I it in the movie theater. Actually, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I did too. No. Yeah. Oh, Okay. <laughs> When did you first see it? Um, actually, my dad went and saw it without me, so I was very upset. <laughs> <laughs> and so I ended up only watching it in my, I'd say, about my mid twenties. Okay, yeah, so okay. some years back. Yeah. So, what is what is all of your opinion of the movie, and has that opinion changed over time? It's hard for me to fathom that this came out almost twenty years ago. Um, cause it, it feels, it feels so relevant. Like there was a few little moments where, you know, you see like the telephone and you're like, oh, okay, this is like, you know, 2003 or, you know, some of the electronics and stuff. And that was really the only reference, um, that made it stick out that this was filmed so long ago, you know, and that kind of made me, 
I don't know, feel old because <laughs> I don't know. Cause it's just, I don't know. I just, I resonate a lot with it because I think I was maybe go, trying to go through like my curl, like cool girl phase. And I thought that this movie was like really cool and hip and um, it spoke to me as like a young girl or a young woman at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd say the same when I saw it, I um, was with a, friend and I wasn't married or had any inkling that that was going to happen anytime soon and um, definitely identified more with the Scarlett Johansson character this time around though about 20 years later I am married almost for 16 years I have an eight-year-old child and I'm like oh Bob (laughs) 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 hang in guys okay um so it was and i felt like it was harder to watch this time because it deals so much with like isolation and feeling lonely and lost and this whole year has been about like isolation i mean my big question was like who am i when i'm not in community with people you know Mm -hmm. my friends and my work and whatever i'm like i i i who am I? Like, what do I really like? What music is really my own music? Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was hard to watch. I'm like, I'm tired of being alone. I'm tired. I don't want to see this. So it was interesting this time around. Yeah. For me, I have like a very different perspective because when I first saw the movie, I had never, um, well, I'd been to Asia when I was a Jap- an exchange student in Japan in the, in the summer in high school, but that's a very different experience than when I lived in Korea uh, I lived in Korea for seven years and there's a, a lot of difference between visiting a place even for, you know, six weeks and and then living in a place. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff in the movie when I saw it in 2003 still seemed very novel and maybe strange to me. And now watching it again, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's just normal Asia stuff, whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> it just it just it's it made me nostalgic. It made me miss Korea and Japan. Like, I, I love them together because they do have a lot of cultural similarities. There are a lot of differences, too. But like, like, they're more I feel like in a lot of ways, they're more similar to each other than either of them are similar to the United States. And just like watching it, I just felt nostalgic for being in East Asia. I, I missed a lot of the things and experiences you can have over there. And yeah, like it just didn't seem it, it I, I like it a little less maybe in a weird hmm. way. Like I mm-hmm. still like it, but like after reading some of the criticisms, it's I can't really unsee some of the ways that they may have like hmm. unintentionally at times, maybe even stereotype Japan. And we'll talk about that much later in the show. We'll talk about some of the criticisms of the movie, but like it does it, it like it like took a little of the sheen off of it for me. And at the same time, just like having that experience of living in a foreign culture, I think the experience itself is much richer than any movie can ever capture, sort of by definition. And Luna, do you have any change in perspective or do you feel kind of the same about the movie over time? Um, Well, actually, since the first time I saw it wasn't that long ago compared to you ladies, I feel like there hasn't been that big of a shift, but... I'd say that I I actually liked it more the first time I saw it. So I I really uh, resonate with what you just said, Jennifer, about, you know, it kind of losing a bit of its sheen, Uh, but also making me nostalgic for, you know, uh, (laughs) East Asia and going to karaoke with my friends. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. And the temples, too. My God. I just wanted to go to a temple so bad. I was just like, come on. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. 
Do we all generally like the movie, though? Do people generally like it? Because I just, like, what, regardless of what I said, I do like mm-hmm. the movie. And I think yes. it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, genuinely yeah. like it. All right. So let's talk now about a little, a bit about the important cast and crew from this film. Yes. Starting with Sofia Coppola. Okay. I think we all know she's Francis Ford Coppola's daughter. Um, and she started acting in his films when she was a girl. Um, Peggy Sue got married is one of them. Um, my personal favorite is the outsiders. She's got a little part in that. And the three Godfather films, I think she was a baby in one of mm-hmm. them. And mm-hmm. then years later, you know, she was, was it the same character? I don't, I, I don't know. She got a lot of criticism for Godfather. She got a lot of criticism. <laughs> yeah. That's all I know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so, oh, fun random fact. She also appeared as one of Queen Amidala's handmaidens in the Phantom Menace. Wow. I knew that. that I remember so I knew that. Mm-hmm. It was like her and Kira Knightley or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So, I don't know. Kira Knightley notice. too. I didn't yeah, mm-hmm. she was her double or something. Mm-hmm. And yeah, mm-hmm. and she made a couple short films um, before directing her feature, and the feature being The Virgin Suicides <laughs> in 1999. I remember loving that. And Lost in Translation was mm-hmm. her follow-up feature. And in 2004, at the young age of 32, she was the youngest woman first american woman and third woman overall to be nominated for the best director academy award um other feature films are marie antoinette somewhere the bling ring the beguiled and on the rocks and and can i I ask for a second i'm just curious have you guys seen like the other films beyond the first two i've seen marie antoinette and i watched on the rocks specifically for this podcast but have you guys seen any of the others I started watching The Bling Ring. It's on Netflix. I think it's interesting. It was based on an article, a true story um, from Vanity Fair, the magazine, about these super rich kids who break into super, more super rich people's houses and like steal all their fancy crap. And and then they got busted, of course. So um, I kind of couldn't take it. I'm like, I can't mm. take these spoiled little shits. <laughs> like, I just was like, I. I but it, it, you know, a great tone. Um, you know, she, it's Sophia's style, and she's got a beautiful style and an aesthetic that, um, you know, is pretty flawless and on point and all that. But I just was not in the mood for those kids. <laughs> so you, you didn't see? I'm so you didn't see Marie Antoinette because I would say stylistically, I think that's my other favorite of hers in terms of style. I've seen it, and I I do love that movie. Um, I think it was really well done, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful movie to watch. Yeah, it's been on my list. Mm. I haven't gotten to it though. Yeah, but I saw On the Rocks and I wasn't super impressed with it, unfortunately, because that's another movie she did that has Bill Murray in it. Mm. And oh, it wow. felt a little self-indulgent, to be honest, in my mm. opinion. But but maybe other people may like it. I don't know. And Luna, have you yeah. seen any of the others? Uh, no, only Marie Antoinette, which, okay. um, yeah, it was visually very beautiful and stunning. But I don't know. It was just OK for me. <laughs> It did make me research more about Marie Antoinette. I went after I watched the movie and I researched more about her life. So that was interesting. I like yeah. it when a historical film interests me enough that I want to do some more reading later. So Yeah. I, I never saw The Beguiled, mostly because it just got such bad press for being mm-hmm. whitewashed. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, bad move. And just never got around to it. But all those actresses that are in it are wonderful. And it's an interesting story. So as we've said 
Sophia and Bill Murray have worked together twice um, or three times. Um, Yeah, three times. Yeah. uh, For A Very Murray Christmas and On the Rocks, as well as Lost in Translation here. And she has an upcoming TV movie of The Custom of the Country based on Edith Wharton novel. Ooh, that's in production. Mm -hmm. And um, okay, so this is is just a fun side note about the... creative collaboration between Sophia and her brother, Roman Coppola and their cousin, Jason Schwartzman. Um, I forgot. He's a, he's yeah. a leader too. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, and um, Wes Anderson and Bill Murray. So it's, this just, so it's not like Sophia and Wes have done work together, but Roman has done work on both of their films. He does like second unit stuff, directing, writing, producing. And Jason Schwartzman has definitely been in both of their films, as has Bill Murray. So just kind of cool. I really like that. You know, they're creative unit. And um, that's really like, I, I think, um, important. You know, when you're creating, mm-hmm. you've kind of got your pod and the people that you have a language with and understand each other and are able to, you know, create something together is really beautiful to me. So, yeah, <laughs> I had read that it was because of Wes Anderson's connection to Bill Murray is why Sofia Coppola ended up convincing him, convincing Bill Murray to be in this movie. Apparently, he's really hard to get a hold of. He doesn't have like a management company or anything. So you like literally have to like stalk him (laughs) in order to like get him to like return your phone calls. And apparently that's what she did to get Bill Murray to be in this movie. So yeah, I read it was a different random guy, but I read the same thing that he's really hard Mm. to get a hold of. And she had to like find a way to get Mm. the script to him. And then like he didn't sign a contract either, I guess. (laughs) So she was like worried he wouldn't show up. (laughs) Yeah. But then but then they're like, no, he'll show up. Don't worry. (laughs) Wild. That I was just like, yeah, I'll be there. And she's like, oh, okay. (laughs) That would give me an ulcer of anxiety. (laughs) Like I couldn't. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so now we're going to talk about Scarlett Johansson, and she plays Charlotte in the movie. I'm sure you're very familiar with Scarlett Johansson in the audience, but we're going to do a little bit of an overview. Uh, She started acting at eight, and her first role was actually in an off-Broadway play with Ethan Hawke. Like, imagine, like, your first role is with Ethan Hawke. That's pretty cool. And then she had her first film role in North in 1994. And then some of her notable early films were Manny and Lowe, uh, the Horse Whisper, which is the first time I noticed her with Robert Redford in that movie, and Ghost World, and I loved Ghost World. I was obsessed with that. And she she did Lost in Translation at the age of seventeen. Like I would have, I would never have guessed she was that young in this. Movie. I thought I read mm-hmm. nineteen, which I thought was young, but seventeen. Wow. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's that's I read that a couple places. Yeah, she was seventeen. Yeah. And Sofia Coppola wanted her for the movie because of her work in Manny and Lowe, which I haven't seen yet, but maybe I'll check it out one of these days. So she only took a lunch meeting with uh, Scarlett. She didn't make her audition for the movie. And then after Lost in Translation, or actually around the same year, Girl with the Pearl Earring came out. And then she did a couple Woody Allen movies, including Match Point and Vicky Cristina Barcelona. She was in The Other Bowling Girl, and she was in The Prestige. And she's done some rom-com and like, I would say rom-com adjacent work. She was in the nanny diaries. He's just not that into you. She plays kind of like the, the adulterer enabler. And she's also in Don John and her. So she's been in a lot of movies in the genre. Nowadays, she's mostly known for her work in the Marvel cinematic universe as Natasha Romanoff, AKA black widow. And she first made an appearance in the MCU in 2010 in Iron Man 2, 
And she will have appeared in eight Marvel movies altogether, including the upcoming Black Widow. And I love the Marvel movies. So, uh, <laughs> and I think she's a great choice for that role. I think she's done really great work in those, in that series. And then recently she's, she had the honor of being nominated in both acting categories at the 2020 Oscars. She was nominated for Marriage Story as Best Actress and Jojo Rabbit as Best Supporting Actress. And she's also known for the kind of horror sci-fi film Under the Skin. So she's been doing some really impressive work, you know, not just commercial work in the MCU, but just great acting. She's been nominated four times total for the Golden Globe, starting with Lost in Translation as well. Moving on to Bill Murray. I had this funny image of Sofia Coppola and Wes Anderson fighting over who loves Bill more, being like, he's my muse. No, he's my muse. And because they and, both seem to feature him in their films. So. And I would say, don't forget Jim Jarmusch, because he, he Bill Murray was in Coffee and Cigarettes, Broken Flowers, and The Dead Don't Die with him, too. And he's another auteur, indie auteur. Oh, okay. <laughs> fun, fun. And as we know, Bill Murray started out in Saturday Night Live between 1977 to 1980 and some of his older, well, not older. um, Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Caddyshack in 1980, Ghostbusters, Scrooge, What About Bob, Groundhog Day, Rushmore is one of Jen's favorites, and um, seven other Wes Anderson films, approximately half of Anderson's directing career. Uh, a Glimpse Inside the Mind of Charles Swan III, and that was directed by Roman Coppola. A Very Murray Christmas and On the Rocks is his latest one. And he was nominated for Best Actor in his role for Lost in Translation. And Murray has said it's his favorite film he's worked on. An upcoming Ghostbusters Afterlife is out this year. Oh, my. Yeah, there's a lot um, of the original cast in that one. I noticed Sigourney Weaver and Annie Potts and, like, Dan Aykroyd and Ernie Hudson. I don't I, – yeah, maybe more. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's wild. That's awesome. And in production, a film called The French Dispatch, directed by none other than Wes Anderson. The next actor we're going to talk about is Giovanni Ribisi. He played Charlotte's husband, John, who's a photographer. Uh, Like Scarlett Johansson, he was also a child actor. He did his first role at the age of 11. Uh, He did a lot of TV initially. He was, interestingly enough, the narrator in The Virgin Suicides, which was Sofia Coppola's first movie. Um, He's also known for Boiler Room, which is probably my favorite movie that he's done, Cold Mountain, Avatar, and he was in the TV show Sneaky Pete. Coming up for him, he's going to do all four Avatar sequels. Um, Another small character in the movie is played by Anna Faris. She plays Kelly, who is presumably an actress that had worked with John before. She's been in a lot of rom-coms, including The House Bunny, Take Me Home Tonight, What's Your Number? With Chris Evans. Is that Mm -hmm. one of yours? She was in um, the Overboard remake. Uh, She's also known for the Scary Movie and their sequels. Currently, she's on the CBS TV show Mom with Allison Janney. Uh, The finale airs this May. And currently, she's working in pre-production on a comedy film called Summer Madness. Yeah, I really like Anna Faris. I think she's kind of doesn't get enough credit for how funny she is. 
Yeah, I think people don't know what to do with her because she's like pretty, but she's not so pretty that she gets to be like the hot girl always. And mm-hmm. she's but she's funny, but she's so pretty that I think she doesn't get credit for being funny. So I think she gets caught in this like awkward place sometimes. But like she's I I think what's your number is really underrated. I hope we cover it at some point. And like I thought the house bunny was good, even though I didn't really like the concept. She's she is a good performer. So yeah, yeah I like her she too. is. I did I did read that supposedly her character even though Sofia Coppola denies it supposedly her character is based on um Cameron Diaz who had oh. worked with oh, wow. who had worked with who had worked with Sofia Coppola's then husband Spike Jones in uh being John Malkovich and apparently there was a little bit of a t- of tension so but Sofia Coppola denies it I don't know yeah those were yeah, just she, some articles yeah Sofia yeah, Sophia Coppola said there's like eight actresses it could be. Like she denies mm-hmm. it. I mean, who knows? Who knows what the truth is? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. When I was watching it, though, I was like, oh, this is kind of like Cameron Diaz. But I don't really know who Cameron Diaz is. So I don't know. So one of the things I found really interesting was finding out about Catherine Lambert. Now, Catherine Lambert plays the kind of cheesy lounge singer uh, in the movie from the band Sausalito. They keep going to the New York bar and seeing this lounge singer. And she has this vibrant red hair and she's just like so over the top and it turns out that like this is an actual singer that Sofia Coppola saw performing in Tokyo in 2001 and she tracked her down specifically for the movie and apparently she seems to be from South Australia like there's a MySpace page for her still but I don't have MySpace anymore so I couldn't (laughs) access it that's awesome but everything about that is awesome Yeah. And I don't know for sure if she's still making music, but she, you know, she'd made music for quite a while. And like, you know, she's supposed to be this kind of figure, like a a ridiculous figure in the movie, but I say like, good for her. Like she's, she's singing, she has a good voice. She's having fun. And she has five acting credits total, nothing else that really stuck out. But like, yeah, like I thought it was so neat that it's like a real singer she saw. Yeah. That's really cool. That's great. So the cinematographer Lance Accord, I wanted to give, some mention to um, his first feature cinematography debut was um, in Vincent Gallo's cult classic Buffalo 66 in 1998. Um, and he has a long list of credits, including Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation. And he uh, had a BAFTA nomination for Best Cinematography. Um, and he also did Marie Antoinette as well. And he also did Spike Jones's being John Malkovich adaptation and where the wild things are. So, you know, at the time of the filming of Lost in Translation, Sofia Coppola and Spike Jones were married. So this cinematographer had already worked with, you know, was working with both of them. And just Spike Jones's films and Sofia Coppola's films have a similar style and aesthetic. And Lance accord you know helps make that happen and captures that so i felt that whole creative vibe was happening in the late 1990s and early 2000s and just felt like that was worth mentioning yeah and after you found that it made me curious to see if there were some other people that worked with her regularly and it turns out that the editor for lost in translation sarah flack um Worked, started working with Coppola on that movie, but then worked as an editor for her on all of her subsequent features and on A Very Merry Christmas. So I thought that was also worth mentioning. She's had this editor for some time. And Sarah Flack is also known for The Limey, Away We Go, and St. Vincent. And she won a primetime Emmy for her TV movie, Cinema Verite. 
Okay, so let's talk now about some of the inspirations for Lost in Translation. I saw like about five or six different things that said, this is inspired Lost in Translation. I'm sure they were all a piece. So one of them said Coppola got the idea soon after marrying Spike Jones, as she was feeling isolated, and they ended up divorcing the same year the film was released. So that's one, one factor was that Coppola's marriage played into this, her experience of being married to Spike Jones. Another factor for it being set in Tokyo is Coppola had previously spent time in Tokyo taking photos, and she also worked on a fashion brand called Milkfed in Tokyo. And she said, she told, I think this was in IndieWire also, she told, said she wanted to shoot a film in Tokyo and capture the neon. And this is a quote from an interview she did with IndieWire. A lot of the guys in the movie, like Charlie Brown, are people I've known for years. The idea for Lost in Translation really started when I saw Charlie perform God Save the Queen at a karaoke bar. I said, I have to put this in a movie. So Charlie, uh, the character in the movie, is actually somebody she knew. That's a person she knew named Fumihiro Hayashi. And so that's his only acting credit is for Lost in Translation. So some of the people in the movie were people she knew. Hmm. And... And another thing that Coppola said about making the movie, she said, I can only say why I wanted to make the movie, to convey what I love about Tokyo and visiting the city. It's about moments in life that are great, but don't last. They don't go on, but you always have the memory and they have an effect on you. So I thought it was interesting just like reading about the different seeds for making the film. Mm, I like that. Um, and I think that plays into, again, I keep using the word the aesthetic, but it's so... So part of the story, uh, again, from that IndieWire interview, she said that she wanted it to be the look to be based on the way a snapshot looks. And um, question for everybody, what what's a still image you immediately associate with this movie? Yeah, so for me, it's um, the scene where they're sitting outside the karaoke lounge against that tiger print wall and Scarlett Johansson's wearing the pink wig. And I know that's been used in some of the advertisements for the movie, but like, mm-hmm. like it's, it's the one that sticks with me the most. It's just mm-hmm. framed so great. And it just really expresses to me a, tr- a, tr- a true feeling of what it's like to be out late at night in, in certain <laughs> types of environments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The other scene that they used a lot in advertisements was the scene of of bill murray like sitting on the bed with a robe on in the hotel room and like tokyo's in the background and he just like has his legs open and he's just like staring that's um another image that's used a lot well also the the opening scene with (laughs) charlotte laying in bed with those sheer pink undies yeah Um, (laughs) yeah jen i'll tell you um I don't remember where, where I read it or if I saw it or something, but Coppola says she used the film in the mood for love for that, for color inspiration and mood as did we, we spoke last time about crazy rich Asians. So that mm-hmm. movie in the mood for love has come up twice as far as like a, a visual inspiration for nice. these films. And that scene in particular where Bob and Charlotte are leaning up against that wall Reminds me of a lot of In the Mood for Love. Nice. Yeah. Um, The film was shot with a small, lightweight camera so they could be mobile. The film stock has a higher ASA, uh, a rating to sensitivity to light, so they didn't need to light shots a lot. 
And they could go places without being noticed, like the clubs and the subways, for sure. And they did some guerrilla filmmaking, um, which means they didn't have permits to film some places, such as the subway or crossing the street from above. Um, that shot taken out of a Starbucks window up above and looking down. Stealing shots. Yes. Indie way to make a film. Um, <laughs> Coppola says, I wanted the film to look the way Tokyo looked to me when I visited. Yeah, and I think she succeeded. I mean, it feels the visuals all seem true to me. Yeah. yeah. So moving on, uh, the soundtrack to Lost in Translation is very highly regarded. Um, it's frequently included on lists of the best soundtracks, like including Rolling Stones list and Pitchfork's list. And the soundtrack, uh, the music supervisor was Brian Reitzel who was also Sofia Coppola's music supervisor on The Virgin Suicides. And he worked with her on Marie Antoinette and The Bling Ring as well. And Coppola describes what she was going for as a, quote, dream pop mixtape feel. I don't know if, like, I don't really know what dream pop is. Like, I'm not much of a music snob, but I can kind of get the idea from, you know, the the term. sure. And there's five songs by Kevin Shields, who is in the group My Bloody Valentine. And one of the songs is from his group, My Bloody Valentine, called Sometimes, which is a really cool song. I believe it's playing after they leave karaoke and they're on the bridge driving back to the hotel. It's, it's a great song. And there's also songs from Square Pusher, The Jesus and Mary Chain, Death in Vegas. And I love the soundtrack. I think it's great. So now we've talked a little bit about um, some of the look and the aesthetic, and we should also give a little bit of information about Tokyo because it's really such a prominent presence in the film, almost like a character. So Luna is going to tell us a little bit about Tokyo. Okay. So just a little bit of background information. Tokyo is located on Honshu, which is the central island of Japan. It was originally known as Edo, It was renamed as Tokyo and uh, became the capital with the Meiji Restoration in 1868. It was um, severely bombed during World War II. Previous to that, there was also the Great Kanto Earthquake in 1923. So Mm. it has faced some tragedy. The total population is currently at nearly 14 million people. And for the metro, it's around 37.4 million, which makes it the largest metropolitan area in the world. So it's very densely populated. The public transportation system is excellent. So it's a great place to visit and not have to rent a car. You can just get get by on trains and subways and buses even. Um, There are plenty of cool things to see and do, lots of wonderful museums and um, the architecture, it, it is very compact and functional, not always the most aesthetically pleasing, in my opinion. But there's also this beautiful contrast of modern and traditional structures that um, I find you might really appreciate. And finally, it's, Tokyo is set to host the Olympics and Paralympics this summer. They're uh, pushing through with it since they were postponed in 2020. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. is a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> it can yeah. be a little bit intense. <laughs> so for the next section of the podcast, we're going to talk about just some of the shots uh, in the movie. And as we go, we'll talk a little bit about some of the locations in Tokyo and elsewhere that show up in the movie. 
So the first shot we want to discuss, which we already started talking about a little bit, is the opening shot of the movie. So the very first thing we see is uh, Charlotte, uh, just her midsection on the bed in sheer pink underwear. It's very like it's a very bold image to start a movie with. Mm -hmm. And um, I really I looked around to try to find what the image was based on or why it was in there. And so a couple things. Uh, Coppola said that this image was one of the things she had in her mind when she was starting to make the movie. Like it was just one of these kind of snapshots in her head, I guess her vision board or whatever. She didn't say vision board, but that's that's kind of what comes to mind for me. And the image was inspired by, she told the Daily Beast, the image was inspired by the work of an American painter called John, and I couldn't find out how to pronounce his last name. It's K-A-C-E-R-E. And I looked at his paintings and yeah, the inspiration is very apparent right away. So you can see that in the show (laughs) notes if you want to learn a little bit more about his work. And Scarlett Johansson is actually the person wearing the underwear, but she didn't really want to do the shot in the sheer underwear. Uh, She was only convinced to do it when Coppola uh, modeled the underwear for her. Uh, I don't know why that convinced her, but, you know, like, (laughs) whatever. And um, before we talk about our impressions of the shot, I just wanted to mention that this shot, as well as much of the movie, was was shot at the Park Hyatt Tokyo Hotel. And Coppola had stayed there while promoting the Virgin Suicides. Uh, the hotel is the top 14 floors of the Shinjuku Park Tower, and it's a five-star luxury hotel. And according to reports I could find, the rooms are normally at least $500 to $1,000 a night. But right now, the prices are a bit lower, maybe because of COVID. I don't know. Wow. Anyway, anyway, this and many other shots are filmed in the hotel. So it's really an impressive view from the hotel. And what do you guys think about this opening the movie with the pink underwear, the sheer pink underwear scene? Like, what did you think about it then? Now, like, what do you think it adds to the film or not? Well, now that I know that she was only seventeen, that kind of makes it a little different. I'm like, huh? Tried to convince a seventeen year old to wear sheer underwear in your movie is kind of creepy. Now, when I first saw it, it's yes. What was the word you used, Jennifer? I think it was you know a provocative, bold. I think bold. It's bold. Yeah, bold yeah. Um, way to open the film. And this time around, I'm like what does this have to do with being lost in translation? Like, because then it cuts to Bob arriving and I'm like, Mm -hmm. maybe that would have been the way to start. Like somebody, here we are, we're, um, you know, fish out of water, that kind of thing. Lost in translation. All I could think of is I'm like, you know, I wonder if she was like, this is just a hot shot. And damn it, I'm going to put my opening credit over this hot, hot shot. So I I think so. I honestly think so. I think it was an attention grabber. I do. I think it was an attention grabber, maybe for marketing purposes, maybe to get more guys on board with the film. I don't because a lot of guys like this film a lot. Like, (laughs) (laughs) um, you could have. Yeah, but I think it was good to open with seeing both the characters. But you could have opened with one of those shots of her sitting on the ledge looking down at Tokyo that you see like throughout the film, too. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I like the image. Well, it's an interesting same. image. But yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually, yeah, I really like this image. And I was considering it. I mean, as as you said, it's very bold. But I also think there's, there's something interesting at play. So like the sheer underwear um, and the fact that it's pink, is it uh, kind of pointing to like Charlotte's innocence or still girlhood 
or is it actually or mm. is it also like inviting the sensuality that you know because there's not like any uh like sexual intercourse i guess mm. in the movie mm-hmm. like it makes you like and it's it's almost like yeah like even the her skin is covered it's like translucent so you can you can see it but it's like you can't really like get through it you know i don't know it's just mm. i like it it kind of the image did remind me of uh, the virgin suicides. Like I mm. feel like a lot of the images in the virgin suicides are similar to that. Um, I, I guess like capturing innocence or whatnot. And maybe that was kind of like a throwback to that. Yeah, mm. I can see that. I, I, could, I can see both of those interpretations. I like them both. And I could also see like her marriage, like there's not a lot of intimacy shown. I mean, they do, they have their arms around each other at one point and like he gives her kind of a small kiss at another point, but like, they're not very like shown to be very intimately involved with each other. Her husband's always kind of like running off. So like, maybe it's like she's inviting some sexuality and not getting it back could be another thing it's trying to express. I don't know. I think that yeah. shows up very clearly later because she's wearing those underwear again while he's packing up all of his stuff and she walks right by him and Mm -hmm. he doesn't nothing there's nothing not even like a smack on the ass like no kind of and and then she draws attention to her scarf and she's like do you think this is finished and he's like i I don't know you know he so i can i can uh support what you have said jennifer i like Mm. what you were going for Mm. so well, as I said, um, the shot right after this opening credit is uh, Bob arriving uh, in Tokyo. And you hear the plane and the airport sounds, and he's half asleep in the cab as he enters Tokyo. And this is, an, this is a classic uh, Coppola shot where she did it a few times in this film. She does it in other films where it's somebody looking out a window, a moving car window and all of the, the reflection of uh, streetlights or the neon kind of overlaying on that person's face. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, that's, that scene really resonated with me because it's really showing the experience of being jet lagged and entering like a busy Asian city. Like I, I felt that scene in my bones. Like I know that type of exhaustion after the international flight where maybe you couldn't sleep and it's like the wrong time of day. And like, you're just so out of sorts. And then like this overwhelm of all the lights and the people and like the noise. And it's like, it's wild. It's like, and then, and then also an interesting thing, he sees one of his own billboards, which did not happen to me when I went to Asia. I had no billboards, <laughs> but he kind of like does like, he kind of like does a double take and rubs his eyes. Like he feels like he could almost be dreaming. I thought that was so cool. Another significant scene we wanted to make sure we talked about. Um, there's some more th- intervening scenes, of course, but the directing the commercial scene. So Bob has arrived in Tokyo to appear in both a uh, video commercial and promotional photographs for Suntory Whiskey. And so before we talk about the actual scene, uh, Luna, you had prepared some examples of Western celebrities doing ads in Japan because it's very much a thing. So do you want to tell about any of those like a little bit? Yeah, um, it is, it's interesting and especially seeing it in the movie because I've experienced it uh, just being there in Japan and just seeing these uh, Western celebrities kind of all over the place. And so some examples that 
really stuck out to me when I was there were, for example, Tommy Lee Jones, who um, is the face of Boss Coffee. And so if you've been in Japan, you'll, you'll know that there are vending machines everywhere. And so you see his face <laughs> like all over the place. And it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting. Um, and also like he's been doing those commercials for, I guess, over a decade, maybe two decades. And I read somewhere that he actually really enjoys doing them. And uh, he actually took the time to, you know, say some stuff in Japanese. And yeah, I don't know, it's I almost like he's part of the culture. Yeah. Yeah, I watched some and he was actually speaking Japanese in some of them and seems to be doing a fairly decent job. And I added yeah. it. You had one link added. I added another link where he plays a teacher and he has like laser eyes at one point. Yeah. And so like, we'll have these in the show notes. We'll have we'll put we'll put the video links in the show notes so you can enjoy these commercials yourself. Tommy Lee Jones for coffee. That just seems so random. <laughs> like, well, that's that's not what comes to my mind when I think of Tommy Lee Jones, but. It's funny because he actually plays an alien who's trying to integrate into Earth. And so he does all these different activities. And then he just, you know, really? finds himself with a, a can of Boss Coffee. It's just, it's hilarious. <laughs> Is that like Men in Black coming out? Weird. That's wild. Oh, okay. Yeah, I wonder that if that inspired it. Yeah, and then there's a variety of other examples Luna provided, like Sean Connery's done Suntory Crest whiskey commercials. Um, mm -hmm. You put it Scarlett Johansson's shampoo commercial for Lux Shampoo. Yeah, Scarlett Johansson. I was surprised, but it was fun because I just it came on the TV a lot, so I just had a lot of exposure to those. And then I went online to like look up some more, and I've also seen that Bruce Willis, George Clooney, Sylvester Stallone has done some. And I found these Nicolas Cage pachinko ads, which seemed so weird that I like like was doubting that they were like actual ads. I was like, is this like performance art? <laughs> so like, like I didn't I didn't include a link to that, but if you like Google Nicolas Cage Japanese commercial, you may find something interesting. Wow. And then finally, in 1980, Francis Ford Coppola and Akira Kurosawa, the Japanese director, actually collaborated on directing and appearing in a Suntory whiskey ad. So apparently that was another additional inspiration for this plot line. And yeah, wow. isn't that wild? And then mm -hmm. Murray, Bill Murray told The Guardian that he based his expressions in the photos in the photo shoot scene on Harrison Ford's ads for Asahi beer because <laughs> they were all over Japan at the time. And I'm like, and I saw some of them and he looks quite stoic. <laughs> so let's talk now about the actual scene where Bob Harris, Bill Murray is filming the commercial. So I thought this is a very clear example of one of the moments in the film where like something is missed in translation. It's not exactly lost. It seems like the interpreter abandoned it or something like Lunid, What did you think of this interpreter character? Do you think she was just like derelict in her duty or do you, or do you think she was like, <laughs> yeah, I think derelict in her duty is a really good way to put it. <laughs> I just, oh, that scene really had me laughing. I was like, what is this lady thinking? <laughs> Yeah, so some of the dialogue from this scene was was trans like the New York Times had somebody translate the dialogue. So we're gonna like like try to do a little bit of every rom com theater here and act out like what they were actually saying in the scene where they're filming the commercial in Lost in Translation, including what the director was actually saying and what the interpreter said. So everybody know their parts? <laughs> yes. 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 Director in Japanese to the interpreter. 
The translation is very important, okay? The translation. Interpreter. Yes, of course. I understand. Director. Mr. Bobson, you are sitting quietly in your study, and then there is a bottle of Suntory whiskey on top of the table. You understand, right? With wholehearted feeling, slowly, look at the camera, tenderly, and as if you are meeting old friends, say the words. As if you are bogey in Casablanca, saying, cheers to you guys, Suntory time. Interpreter. He wants you to turn, look in camera, okay? Bob. That's all he said. Yay! Yay for, yay for everyone. That was good! I felt really bad for the director after reading that. Like, I read the character, but I feel really bad. Like, all his important direction missed, man. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what, there's a, on the DVD, there's a little you know, making of behind the scenes and mm-hmm. they, sh- they show this behind the scene of this scene and, and Coppola doing just that, giving some instruction to somebody. And then that person translating <laughs> in this in very life and art kind of thing. I thought that was very funny. And <laughs> I loved seeing her trying not to laugh, like cracking up with, you know, Bill Murray doing all his funny stuff and she's just sitting there trying to like not laugh her brains out. So what do you guys think about this scene? Like what do you, what do you, what is your opinion of the the directing the commercial scene? I thought it captured like the awkwardness that that he must be feeling and how out of sorts he is cuz obviously he's really uncomfortable um being there and doing that and I think it really showed that I think this is probably if I had the opportunity to travel, I'm sure I would take it to a place where I don't speak the language. But there's a big part of me that's like, I'm forget it. Really? <laughs> How would I get around? Like I, well, better than they do. You, you could just get a dictionary or use a translating thing on your phone. Like, oh yeah, yeah times are different. So easy. Times yeah. are different. You're so right. Like when I, but was even a Europe. dictionary. When I went to Japan, mm. when I was in high school, I just carried a dictionary like literally everywhere with me. And I would just like if what the phrases I didn't already know from my phrase book, I would like look them up and I just point at words and like you could you could <laughs> buy. You know what I mean? You could buy. Yeah, yeah. I had I mean, that in Brazil. I kept but, my Portuguese yeah. English Bible with me. But in this situation, it's like a professional situation and it's like, like, it's more difficult. And like, I really still like this scene. I think it's really funny. But the first time I watched it, I think my sympathy was more with Bob in terms of like being a foreigner, you know, and not understanding what's being said to you. But this time, understanding the background of like what was being said and having directed things. I feel sorry for the director because he's trying so hard and he just can't catch a break. And I'm like, interpreter, what are you up to there? Maybe she like doesn't really know, like maybe she doesn't know like English that well. And she kind of got the job and she doesn't want to like be found out. I don't know. That's my backstory on that. interpreter. (laughs) Or my thought is, is like she can interpret, but not, not in a artistic sense. Do you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. she just got to the point more intensity. And like not getting the crooks of what's supposed to be happening between a director and an actor or whatever. That, that was my excuse for her. (laughs) More intensity. (laughs) So this scene kind of like ends up, the scene ends up kind of forming a set with like the uh, further scene where they do the photo shoot and the photographer asks him to be like the rap pack and then James Bond and they choose Roger Moore. (laughs) 
<laughs> which which seems like to me it seems like something that would happen in another country like they would just like the wrong james bond according to everyone in, in, in your country they'd be like no we like that one like the way that um what's his name hasselhoff is so popular in germany like, to everybody. <laughs> yeah. like people, are, people have different tastes right right yeah. right and then it also kind of correlates to other times in the movie where Bob has difficulties with communication. So he's got the prostitute scene where they send a prostitute to his room who's like, rip my stockings, he eventually figures out. And the hospital waiting room scene later on, um, the talk show later on, like, like I, 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 th- I like all these scenes, but like some of them seem more... Some of the same, some of the same more kosher to me than others now from this, from looking at it from like a, is there, are there stereotypes in the movie? Like this scene, I don't feel like was like playing on stereotypes. This scene, I think the director, the commercial scene, I think was just legitimately a good example of showing what it's like to try to work cross-culturally when not everyone speaks each other's language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you guys think about these scenes or? Just where there's some language barriers. Yeah, the, the the various scenes we just talked about where he's having difficulty with communication. Do you think they mostly play well, like, or interesting? They're kind of funny, like the prostitute oh. scene and the the waiting room at the hospital. But, like, at, how did that conversation with the old lady start? Was the old lady just talking to him? Or did he start it, like, because it kind of feels like there's this making Up fun here? of kind of thing, you know, and... Apparently what the old guy is saying at the hospital is how oh, long a, have you been in Japan? It's a lady, right? isn't it? It's pro- I yeah. think it's a lady. I think it, I think it was a I man. I thought it was a man. Hospital. It's a man. Oh, it's an older man. Um, I thought it was a lady too. I think it's but, a lady uh, too. I inter- I interpret that as an, a lady, but we'd have to check the yeah, credits for so, for so uh, uh, probably an elderly person. Um Yes. Yeah. As we were saying, yeah, uh, they're just asking uh Bob, how long he's been in Japan. And I think the fact that, you know, they show that kind of communication, even even though it's not successful, it shows like also on the kindness of people in this host culture uh, to to make this effort to try, you know. Yeah, I didn't read it as making fun of her per se. I thought Bob seemed kind of ridiculous. And I think that's partly because like I experienced things like that in Korea where old people would come up to me on the street. They'd be curious about me. And a lot of times they'd be trying to ask me something and they wouldn't really have all the words and I wouldn't have all the words. And we'd be trying yeah. to negotiate this pleasantry. Like I got like, how tall are you a lot? And eventually I figured out I could recognize the Korean words for tall. And I figured out that that's what they were saying to me. That was a common one for me. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, the prostitute scene was a little over the top for me this time. Like certainly like the first time I saw it, I thought it was really funny. This time I thought it was a little bit much. I don't know. Yeah, anything yeah. that kind of the point of the scene was to make it like it was a little much. I guess, but like I worry, like the things with the well, we'll talk about this more later when we get to the criticisms. Mm-hmm. But the RL stuff bothers me because it's like kind of to me a little bit of a cheap shot, like mm-hmm. and it kind of shows a lack of understanding about the Japanese language, like or, yeah. or like what it's like to have different like phonemes in different languages in general. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway. Yeah, definitely. I felt that too in that scene. Uh, Especially this time watching it just made me cringe. Mm, You know, so it's, um, yeah, it's just something to consider in the criticisms. All right. Well, yeah, we'll get more into that later too. 
Okay, so Charlotte, so let's talk about Charlotte and Bob meeting each other. And it's kind of a three part meeting. Like, I really like the way Sofia Coppola does this, actually. She has the main characters, like, meet a little bit at a time, kind of like you might in real life, actually. Like, yeah, like first they see each other in the elevator and Charlotte smiles at Bob, but later she says she doesn't remember smiling at him. And then they're in the New York bar, which is part of the Park uh, Hyatt Hotel in Tokyo. And they're listening to the cheesy lounge singer and they kind of exchange looks, kind of making fun of the cheesy lounge singer. And Charlotte sends him a drink over at the bar. And then finally... In, an, in a subsequent scene, Charlotte can't sleep and she goes to the New York bar again and she sits down next to Bob. So it's like a three-part meeting kind of easing into their uh, company. And I'll just mention really quick about the New York bar in the Park Hyatt. Um, it's a, You can still go there. It's a real bar. And apparently it's quite expensive and there are cover fees also. But there is there are actually jazz performances there, probably not by the awesome over-the-top red-haired lounge singer, but, you know. <laughs> Maybe they have someone just as good. I don't know. And um, as a precursor to their meeting, I guess it's important to say that uh, Charlotte has been feeling depressed before their meeting, and she there's a scene where she tells a friend on the phone uh, that she saw monks chanting and she didn't feel anything. Her husband is using hair products, and, quote, I don't know who I married. And I identified with that. Like you're, you're feeling depressed in a foreign country. You try to help talk to people from home and maybe they don't quite get what you're trying to say. And they say, Oh, happy vacation. I hope you're doing like, I've, I've, I've experienced that. And um, meanwhile, Bob has been um, doing this ad work. He doesn't seem to enjoy. And his wife keeps sending him all these like passive aggressive notes and faxes and carpet samples. And she's not pleased that he's overseas. It's pretty clear. And neither of them can sleep. So this is a little clip of the first time that Charlotte actually sits down next to Bob and they actually talk in person at the New York bar. So what are you doing here? Uh, a couple of things. Taking a break from my wife, forgetting my son's birthday, and uh, getting paid $2 million to endorse a whiskey when I could be doing a play somewhere. Oh. But the good news is the whiskey works. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, my husband's a photographer, so he's here working. And uh, wasn't doing anything, so I came along. And we have some friends that live here. How long have you been married? Yeah, thank you. Mm. Two years. 25 long ones. You're probably just uh, having a midlife crisis. Did you buy a Porsche yet? You know, I was thinking about buying a Porsche. In 25 years. It's a... Well, it's impressive. Well, you figure you sleep one-third of your life that knocks off eight years of marriage right there. So you're, you know, you're down to 16 and change. And, you know, you're just a teenager at marriage. You can drive it, but you can, there's still the occasional accident. <laughs> that cracked me up this time. I'm like, oh my gosh. It's like, well, you figure you sleep there most of it. <laughs> I thought it was a really well-written scene, really well-written meeting. What do you guys think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, 
I think in one of the articles that I cite later on, I think it was Ebert specifically, you know, talks about that there's no meat cute. And, and I love that, that it does happen. I feel like how you would meet somebody, smile in a hotel and maybe not remember it, you know, very yeah. natural, very real. Okay. So after this first meeting, um, it eventually leads to a, another meeting. So Charlotte is sitting with her husband, John, and the actress played by Anna Ferris Kelly and this random DJ guy. Oh my God. And, <laughs> and the, and the, yeah. And the DJ and the actress are like talking about like stuff like Kelly's like, you should do this power cleanse. Tell me you're going to try this power cleanse. And the DJ's like, the beats are hella large and crap. And like, and Charlotte is just not feeling the whole conversation. And like, she sees Bob sitting over, I think again at the bar and she just kind of abandons like her little crew and her husband, John does not even notice, which like, it's one thing to have like very independent roles in a marriage, like totally. Like mm -hmm. I would go off and talk to somebody else. Like if I was with my husband and the conversation wasn't interesting me, but I would tell him or he would notice, or he'd be like, Jen, where are you going? So right. I thought that was really yeah. a good indication of what the state of their relationship was at that point. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And then that's one of the most famous lines in the movie comes in that scene where she goes and abandons her little party to go see him. He says, can you keep a secret? I'm trying to organize a prison break. I'm looking for like an accomplice. We have to first get out of this bar, then the hotel, then the city, and then the country. Are you in or are you out? And Charlotte's like, I'm in. And I thought that was a really brilliant way to establish them as like a pair like an accomplice, like, you know, how on like dating sites, people are always like looking for a partner in crime. <laughs> like that's that, 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 that cheesy thing. It reminded me of that. It's like, it's a way that establishes them as an us basically all of a sudden. And yeah. So I have some ideas about why they're attracted to each other. Like, what do you guys think about why they're attracted to each other? Why do they want to hang out with each other? It kind of seems like they're both in similar places in their life. Kind of unhappy in their relationships or questioning um and then they both find themselves in japan and i think that alone is enough of a connection really to start off their their friendship yeah being foreigners abroad and there is a tendency to look for other expats yeah that's r mm -hmm. a real thing yeah and i think there's a mutual understanding between them that really flourishes I mean, I just feel like they're not trying necessarily to cheer each other up at first. They're just enjoying mm -hmm. their melancholy and and just being together and being able to, to share that with each other when other people weren't understanding or really listening to them uh, would make a situation that could where they could develop intimacy. Yeah. Alone together. Let's be alone yeah. together. <laughs> Well, it's true, right? And they say, I mean, not that they're miserable, but misery loves company. And uh, yeah, I mean, everything everybody has said and just this idea that they're lost. Yep. Lost in translation. They are just lost at a you know point in their life and they connect. Yeah. He's having, he's having his midlife crisis and she's having maybe her quarter life crisis. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, what do I, <laughs> exactly. what do I do or Maybe next? some, some disillusionments about marriage in general. And what another thing that struck me is that how open he is. Like she's like, like remember the guys at the bar in a previous scene had yep. recognized him as Bob Harris and like, what are you doing here? And I think he just said meeting friends or business. He said something really vague, and she's like, 
so what are you doing here? And he's like, he just like unloads all his emotional baggage <laughs> right on her. Yeah, <laughs> he's right. It's like, like oh, I forgot my son's birthday and my wife is not happy with me. And like, like everything at the same time. It's amazing. I thought that was pretty yeah. cool. Isn't that called personal bombing? Like when someone personal bombs you? I have never have heard ever, that expression. Have you ever experienced that? Where like <laughs> I, out of I nowhere, do. they tell you something like really personal and you're like, oh, I just met you. I'm probably the one who <laughs> does that. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I've, I have. Yeah. Yeah. I've met people that way. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm okay with that. And you know, another thing I thought, I don't have this anywhere in the outline, but I find it interesting that like, it didn't even occur to me to put the age difference into the outline until quite late in the, in the process of this. And it's like, we've talked before about how when a woman, older woman, younger man are paired in a movie, we, it's noticeable. And it's like the thing the movie is about, but here we have big age gap and you almost never hear anyone Mm -hmm. talk about it. In some ways, I think they just make it look really natural, but like, yeah, I think there is a, you know, double standard a little bit too. Okay, so we're going to we're going to move on to the karaoke scene or if you want to pronounce it the Japanese way, karaoke. And I'm going to say it sometimes that way, but like if you say it all the time as a westerner, I think it sounds pretentious the way that the Kelly character in the movie always says karate and then everything else she says is like so silly and like You know what I'm talking about, Luda? Is that tricky? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so like they go in the movie to a karaoke room and in the lead up to the scene, Bob comes to Charlotte's hotel room and he ends up like turning his shirt inside out. Cause he wore this like super garish orange camouflage shirt. <laughs> yeah. But in the process, he's like topless in her bathroom, which is kind of intimate and he changes his shirt around and then Charlotte clips his tags, which is also very domestic and intimate. I thought, so it's kind of building intimacy like right there. And when they go out before karaoke, they they meet one of Charlotte's friends. They previously mentioned Charlie Brown, which is like a, a just a nickname for this Japanese guy that Sofia Coppola actually knew. And they go to this party with like Japanese surfers and artists. And it's kind of a cool party. It's really the most you get to see of like Japanese people and Western people relating naturally in the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and it's certainly not a lot. And I don't really think you get to know the inner world of Charlie Brown per se, but no. And one thing I noticed this time when I was rewatching it is that he, Bob at one point starts talking in French to one of the Japanese guys. Yeah. So like they found a yeah. third language yeah. to communicate in, which is really cool. Yeah. I love that. I didn't notice that. I, I noticed that this time too. It was like, what, what's going on there? That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so just like a little note about the karaoke scene. So the Japanese, many people know, did invent karaoke, and it means empty orchestra is what it actually means. And Luna, I believe this is true that karaoke, or see, I'm just going to say karaoke, that karaoke rooms are like the most common form in Japan, I believe still. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because when I was in Osaka, we did go to a bar where you could just, they had a mic at the bar and like, it was like, not like America because you're not standing up and performing, but it was more like you're sitting at the bar and performing. But I think the rooms are more popular. Yeah. yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, and I this is my favorite scene. So we all have different favorite scenes. This is my favorite scene because like I went to a lot of karaoke rooms, which in Korea are called norebang, which means singing room. And when I was in Korea, and there, it's a very different experience than American karaoke. You're mostly going with people you know. 
there's a lot more group participation in the songs and like the way they end up at karaoke is like exactly like the way most people end up there. Like they've been partying and partying and then they just like sort of tumble into the karaoke room. Not my style. I was the person who's like, guys, let's just go to the karaoke room at nine. Like we don't need to be drunk. Let's, let's just, can we just go sing? Like, I don't want to wait until two in the morning to go to the Nori Bong, but like, Sometimes I would like actually wait up with people while they were in smoky bars until like midnight, one, two in the morning, even just so I could go to sing Nori Bong with people because I was like so desperate. Oh. Oh. <laughs> but it, it's like I thought it was very realistic. Like people will also go to karaoke rooms though for like company functions or like company parties and they'll go alone to practice, which is also something I've done. Yeah. Did yeah. you have a lot of karaoke experience or karaoke experience in Japan, Luna? Yeah, I did. And I, I just really love karaoke. And um, uh, thankfully, I didn't have to wait as many hours as you to go <laughs> because our friends and I would just go like at around 9 p.m. and stay until 3 a.m. sometimes. So, oh my God, that just right. <laughs> Yeah, that's perfect. Yep, it's and the like, best. Is everybody, do people are like they good singers? Are you not a good singer? Nobody cares. Like, what's I would never do it. I'm like no people I don't think people care at least none of the people I went with cared like okay. everybody just took their turns yeah I think the one yeah. thing is you it's not polite to hog the mic you don't want to like sing too many times in a row if other people are waiting to sing mm-hmm. that would be one thing I would say would you agree with that Luna yeah definitely just make sure each each person chooses like a song and make it fair yeah but um yeah, I, th- I think nobody cares. And, and since you're the good thing about having like karaoke rooms is that since everybody that you're going with is usually, uh, you know, people that you're already acquainted with, you know, you don't have to feel like self-conscious at all about, you know, singing. So it's really, really fun. Yeah. And like, I thought like the, the karaoke scene, in addition to being like a realistic portrayal of kind of like nightlife that you might have in Tokyo, like they kind of advanced the plot, well, the themes a little bit with the song choices. Well, I mean, God Save the Queen yeah. is just kind of like, I don't know, like she just said she liked that performance by her friend and she wanted to put it in a movie. And I'm glad she did. It was a great performance. Yeah. I love the sort of standing up on the couch of the table. Like, <laughs> yeah. Really putting his heart in it. But, um, Scarlett Johansson, particularly Charlotte's brass and pocket performance is just like, so that is seduction karaoke. I have tried (laughs) that before Um, where where you're like aiming your song at someone and you're just really playing it up and you're like, yeah, very obvious seduction karaoke on that one. (laughs) And then Bob's songs are a little older, um, peace, love and understanding. And yeah, I just thought it was great. Everything about that scene I love. That's so realistic. Anyone else about this more about this one? Um, it's it's where they like loosen up and they get out of that hotel. And I, mm. I agree with you that it's you're finally seeing some life, you know, her friends and some connection and quote unquote real Tokyo, not this hotel with the, you know, light jazz bar. <laughs> yeah or professionals who have to interact a certain way with bob like yeah you know, yeah showering him with gifts or like you know right yeah and then of course the after they're singing they're outside the singing room for a minute and that's where you get the iconic charlotte putting her head on bob's shoulder against that tiger stripe background and you can go to this karaoke room at least as of 2018 you could and it is a branch of the karaoke chain karaoke con 
And I'll put the address in the, yeah, I don't need to tell you the, the address right now, but it's room 601 and 602. And I'll put the instructions on how to get there just in case <laughs> anybody awesome. wants to get there in the show notes. And apparently it's a very popular room. And they, there was a plaque yeah. at one point in Japanese about like, this is the, did you go there, Luna? You didn't try to go there, did you? No, Ever? but I okay, want okay. to now. <laughs> yeah. <you> go. <laughs> goals, goals. Okay, and then after karaoke, um, Bob carries Charlotte back to her room in the hotel and tucks her into bed, which is a classic rom-com trope, really. That's about as close as this movie gets to being tropey, in my opinion. Agreed. I think it's also interesting because the way I saw it is when he does this, it's it almost feels more fatherly than sure. romantic. So it's, it's sure. interesting. It's like there's that tension at play. I felt a lot of that in the movie. Um, I I think when I first saw it, that I I saw a lot more of the the romantic elements. But this time around, I saw it as being a lot more paternal. Like he was being mm. a lot more paternal with her and giving her advice and so forth. And yeah, you know, and just the way he acted, the things that he said, and then that particular scene um, where he tucks her into bed. What, which I think can a lot of times play out in older, younger relationships. I mean, not to get too like Freudian or anything, but um, I've I've seen that play out. Not me personally, because <laughs> I'm not that old, but I do have some friends that have quite older significant others, and sometimes their interactions do come across as almost like parenting. Yeah. yeah. All right, so we're going to enter now the much coveted spoilers okay section where we can spoil anything about the movie so if you have not seen the movie and don't want to know the ending please exit the podcast now okay so i just really wanted to mention quickly um speaking of the weird line between whether this is like romantic or uh mother or father and daughter type interaction there's a scene in a strip club uh, where Charlie asks uh, Charlotte to meet him at this strip club. And um, then Bob shows up a little late to, to meet the group. And Charlotte's just like watching this very up close, this completely naked Japanese woman stripping to Peach's fuck the pain away for a couple of guys. And meanwhile, Charlie's in a back room getting like a, a lap dance or something. Or no, wait, the Charlotte, no, Charlotte shows up. I'm sorry. Charlotte shows up and Bob's already there watching this stripping. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a very striking scene. The, move, the club is apparently called Orange. Or the, the fake club, the fictional club, which made me think of Clockwork Orange. I don't know if that was intentional. Hmm. And it's not an actual club. It was filmed in a clothing store called APC Underground in Harajuku, which seems to still be there. And I have a theory on this scene. My theory is that this scene is there to introduce sexuality as a factor in their relationship without them having to become sexual. That's my theory. Hmm. What do you guys That's think of this scene? Was it... Was it an, cause I can't think of why else the scene is in there. Is it necessary in some way? Like, what is it doing? Like, what do you guys think? I think for me, I interpret it slightly differently. I, I do agree okay. that it, it might be there to introduce some sexuality. And I think that's a really cool idea. But I, I also think it's interesting that Charlotte arrives and then pretty, pretty quickly they, dec- they decide to get out of there. So it's yeah. like they don't <laughs> linger in that space. So. It's almost like I, don't I see know. what yeah, I see what you're getting at. Yep. Like almost like, like that's not what their relationship's about. Like, no, this isn't what we're into. We're into like our togetherness. 
to that. Yeah, perhaps. And it's almost like they prefer their own intimacy than the lure of like something that is overtly sexual. So I don't know. It's- yeah, no, I like that. I like that interpretation because that's kind of how I felt too. Okay. And then um, after the whole experience, they they run through traffic together, holding hands, like as if they're fleeing the strip club almost. And then they return to the hotel and they pass by Kelly, who's singing this just terrible rendition of Nobody Does It Better for the people at the New York bar, as if they want to hear her singing this like song. Like, it's so, it's so sad. It's just like, you, you just feel like nobody wants to hear her singing. And she's like kind of deluding herself. And then um, they go to bed in their own separate rooms. But then she gets like a note slipped under the door that says, are you awake? And I was like, this is like totally the 2003 like equivalent of the you up text message. (laughs) (laughs) And then we get into what is this your favorite scene, Sophia, or just a scene that interests you? Um, Just interest me because of how it changed for me from 2003 to 2021. Well, so, like, why, uh, why don't you introduce it? Why don't you go sure. ahead and talk so, about it? So Charlotte goes to Bob's room and they're watching um, La Dolce Vida together and drinking. What are they drinking, girls? Do, you, do we know? Some kind of wine out of wooden square cups. Do you think it's sake? I don't know. Oh, sake. Yeah. Okay. okay. Probably. I think it's sake. And, and just... Um, because neither of them can sleep. And uh, Charlotte says, let's never come here again because it would never be as much fun. And the discussion about does it get easier and knowing yourself and your career. And and then, uh, yeah. And I have a wanna... clip as the discussion continues. Would you like me to play it or do you want to say more about it first? No, go ahead. Play it. Okay. What about marriage? Does that get easier? That's hard. We used to have a lot of fun. Lydia would come with me when I made the movies and we would laugh about it all. Now she doesn't want to leave the kids and she doesn't need me to be there. The kids miss me, but they're fine. It gets a whole lot more complicated when you have kids. Yeah, it's scary. It's the most terrifying day of your life, the day the first one is born. Yeah, nobody ever tells you that. Your life, as you know it, is gone. Never to return. But they learn how to walk and they learn how to talk and and you want to be with them. And they turn out to be the most delightful people you will ever meet in your life. Yeah, that was emotional. And it bummed me out for Bob and his wife. Um and things like he said, like they don't, they miss me, um, but they're fine. And she doesn't need me to be there. And I was like, that's not me at all. I totally need Greg. Um, our daughter would not be fine without him. Like he's the best dad. So um, 
Well, do you think it's the truth or do you think Bob's lying to himself, basically? <laughs> no, I think it's pr- it could be very true for their situation. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that's not everybody's situation, but like the whole thing about like it gets harder with kids. I'm like, yes, fine, it does. And the whole thing about like your life, as you know, it is gone. I'm like, yes, but, you know, <laughs> shut up. Because <laughs> um, I will find myself so much all the time being like oh when I was trying to do that one thing how did I do it before and I'm like okay so I carved out this time and blah 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 I'm like oh wait no daughter no kid that was okay completely like whatever I did before that worked for me to do a new challenge or in some kind of new endeavor I have to remember that life before her and now are just they're they're not the same and I can't ever expect to do things the way I did before. But the whole thing about them being the most delightful people you'll ever know, I would yes, indeed. So that yeah. makes you relate more with Bob then? Oh gosh, yeah. Like, I don't know. I feel like for the Charlotte character being like I'm I'm stuck and I don't know what I want to be and do. And you know what? Me neither still. But there's, it's kind of like, oh, well, that was 20 years ago. Just let it go. I don't know that I'm going to be and do anything. Like, I'm a, it's, it's a little different for me now. I'm not as angsty about it as I used to be. So for me, like, I, I, it's interesting because for me, like, I cared more about Lydia this time than I ever did, you know, when I first saw the movie. Like, every oh, time you, wife, you hear Lydia yeah. through her notes or her phone call, and I just feel like, yes, she's being passive aggressive, but I think it's like, she probably does. I feel she wants Bob at home. Yeah, she wants, absolutely. She wants him with the kids. And like for him to say, oh, they don't need me or they don't miss me. I think like probably they do, but like Bob and Lydia are just not communicating well together at all. Like, and who knows whose fault it is more. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, we, we have to remember this is the same Bob who like turns around the next day and like sleeps with like the freaking lounge singer. Right. It's like, so we don't know much about like what his character has been or how Lydia's experience has been. And then so I believe Serena and Luna, you both said that you liked um, image from this scene. Yeah. Yeah. There's a really yeah, good I scene really where like- it's kind of an overhead shot. There's an overhead shot uh, showing Bob and Charlotte on the bed and they're having this discussion. And then at one point he just like very lightly puts his hand. They're not really touching, but they're really close together. And he lightly puts his hand on her, on her foot or her feet. And and again, I kind of read into that as being more uh, paternal than Mm -hmm. romantic, you know, especially about Mm -hmm. like what they're talking about. It just, it felt like they were connecting, but it didn't necessarily feel like it was necessarily romantic. Okay. See, I feel like she is romantically inclined towards him. Like maybe she wouldn't know what to do if it actually happened. Like if she actually caught him, maybe. But I feel like she's definitely putting out that vibe towards him. Like even when you're getting together with someone, sometimes you talk about your relationships as a precursor to getting together, like your past relationships mm-hmm, usually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I felt that coming from her. But I think I do see what you're saying, though, that he is often very paternal to her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, sometimes you, you can mistake wanting to have a connection with someone with with like sex or like sexual yeah. intimacy when you're really not looking for that or you're really just looking for someone to to understand you or talk to you or listen to you. You know, I've, yeah. I've made that mistake a lot um, of confusing those two things. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm hearing you in like, you know, having intimacy but not being physical. I think that can be kind of awkward 
with two married people. And yet, you know, he's he's a man. She's a woman. They're both married to people, but they're they're having, you know, a connection, uh, you know. Yeah. Intimacy in their conversation and stuff like that. And, and definitely not con- confusing it, you know. And definitely kind of like a forbidden one, because like I, I kept on thinking too as like being Lydia or John, Charlotte's husband. Like, how would you feel if your husband was laying in bed in a hotel mm-hmm. room with a younger, pretty girl that he'd been spending all his time with? Like, how would that make you feel? Like, would you be okay with that? Would that would you be like, oh, they're just friends? You know, I kept on like going back to that. Like, hmm, they are really crossing some lines because a lot of times in marriage relationships or, or partnerships, that could be considered, even though they're not doing anything physically, that can be considered, you know, being unfaithful as well or causing some, you know, mm-hmm. uncomfortableness. Yeah, emotional intimacy is very valuable. And I think they've even done studies where women value emotional intimacy and consider emotional intimacy more of almost a betrayal than they do physical intimacy, where yeah. whereas it's the opposite with guys, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So it's an interesting scene. It clearly denotes some type of intimacy. Yeah. Building yeah. between them. And then the touch of the foot. Yeah. I actually felt that this uh, scene uh, in bed was actually uh, quite sexually charged. And I feel like the, the emotional intimacy is already there. And I think, you know, their feelings are reciprocated and they're even extending into the sensual. And I think he's he's grabbing her foot, but at the same time, he loves her. So he doesn't want to go there, you know? Mm-hmm. That's how I felt yeah. watching this. Yeah. Um, and so for me, like, I felt that tension very intensely inside me, like, as mm. as I watched it. They gave us more tension. No, sorry. <laughs> more tension. Okay, so the next day, the next day after they've had this really intimate scene, uh, they actually kind of go their separate ways, and you see Bob go like I think that's when he goes golfing. I believe mm-hmm. with Mount Fuji in the background, and Charlotte goes to Kyoto on the bullet train. And there's just a few locations I just wanted to mention that you see there. Can you say this actually, Luna, just to make sure it's done right? Yeah, definitely. So the first place is Nanzenji Temple, uh, where she Charlotte sees a traditional wedding party. And uh, it's basically a temple built in the 13th century. It's uh, one, actually one of the most important Zen temples in Japan. So that's one of the beautiful places. Then we have Heian Jingu Shrine, uh, where we see Charlotte crossing the pond on stones. And that's a very beautiful scene. Heian Shrine was built in 1895 to commemorate the 1100th anniversary of Kyoto's being named Japan's capital. So um, Kyoto was actually named Heian at that time. Then we have Chion In, which is also briefly seen. And um, it's the headquarters of Pure Land Sect of Buddhism. So I just thought this segment of the movie was so beautiful and mm-hmm. really represents, like, there's certainly busyness and city stuff going on in Kyoto, but you do get some of those moments of just peace when you go to visit Kyoto. I would recommend people go there over Tokyo, actually, if they've never been to Japan and they can yeah. only see one place. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Luna? That's what I felt, too. Like, if I were to go, I'm like, I would go straight there. That, <laughs> that's exactly. It's beautiful. Yeah. What about you, Luna? Do you have a preference or do you just can't choose? 
Well, I like them both. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'd say, yeah, Kyoto has, since it was spared from the bombing in World War II, mm -hmm. uh, it gets to keep all those beautiful uh, traditional places. So uh, very iconic. So I highly recommend it. Okay. And then um, after this trip to Kyoto, Charlotte comes back from her trip only to knock on Bob's door in the morning and hear um, the lounge singer is in his hotel room singing Midnight at the Oasis. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. And that's like the, I love how they, they, they can, they uh, communicate it through her singing rather than you actually seeing her in there. You know what I mean? I love yeah. that. That was great. That was brilliant. Yeah. And she's really upset about this because she's been developing this intimacy and maybe she had this like romantic thing for him, or maybe she just wanted all of his attention. So they have some like, yeah, some like little tense scenes after that before initially Bob actually is having to leave Tokyo. So yeah. Anything before the goodbye scene, anyone wants to put in? Okay. So Bob's reaction was interesting. Like, he wakes up as if he's been, you know, drugged and he's like, what's going on? And oh my gosh. And I'm like, really? You didn't know? What you... Yeah. Oops. I don't know. Yeah. It was kind of an interesting reaction. Too much whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> Too much <Yeah>. Suntory times. <laughs> yeah. That's the only real interpretation I can think of. Yeah. So are we ready? We can go mm -hmm. on to the, the goodbye scene. <gasps> Man, it was tough. Um, so the big whisper, you know, everyone, it, I remember that being like a thing. And people were like, what did they say? What did he say to her? And briefly, uh, well, I have a big text, a big uh, quote from Roger Ebert that we'll just kind of put in the show notes. Um, but um, Coppola says that, you know, she didn't know that Bill was going to do that and she was going to figure out later and post, you know, what to do about it. But she uh, says that I always liked, I always like Bill's answer that it's between lovers. So I'll leave it at that. And I, I, I like that. Yeah. Uh, I, also, I also like that, like um, people in the movie are constantly not understanding what other people are saying. And now the audience also doesn't get to understand what somebody's mm, saying. Yes. <laughs> Even, yeah. Yeah. Apparently, I read as well that the at that ending scene they they kiss briefly, and apparently that wasn't in the script, and oh, really? that was something that was something that um that Bill and Scarlett ad libbed, and they they felt like it was just natural, so they like naturally just wanted to kiss in that scene. That's yeah. really interesting because yeah. I completely forgot they did that. I knew they hugged, and I think I knew there was like a kiss on the cheek, but I forgot about that. You know yeah. that they kiss mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. It's very brief, though. It's a very small. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But they do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that. And so I still wasn't sure. I still haven't decided. I'm like, is there a sexual tension thing? What's going on? I was very confused this time where like the first time I felt like I had a definite like feeling of what this relationship was. This time I'm like, I was a little more confused. And then the kiss totally threw me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like he could be he could be whispering anything. He'd be like, "Meet me and meet me." <laughs> I don't know. Right, I don't think. But so. probably not. Probably not. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, the first time I watched the movie, it just felt like the whole movie had so much, you know, like sensual tension, and it was just like a crescendo. It was just like building up to this moment, and when they kiss, like I just felt so relieved somehow. 
I don't know. Mm-hmm. I was really happy. Yeah. And like this time I didn't mm-hmm. feel it as much, but I was still happy about it. It just, just to, that they get to share that one really intense yeah. moment before they're mm-hmm. parting. Yeah. And then this brings us to one of the themes of the movie, which is uh, unrequited love. Um, so yeah, the story ends with the main characters separating. They've never really dated. They've only held hands, head on the shoulder, the touch of the foot, the small kiss and that whisper. But they're not together and there's not an expectation that they will be. And I, I personally think a lot of the films that I'll think of in my mind is very romantic. A lot of them have unrequited love in them. I don't know if that's the same for you guys. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I personally, uh, like, unrequited love has been, like, a, a running theme in in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's kind of, like, similar situations because I, I traveled a lot by myself in my 20s and 30s. And I've had a lot of, you know, different kinds of relationships kind of similar to that like you meet someone you're constantly together for a few weeks at a time and it is really like special and intimate and but then you have to part for whatever reason so I I really related to that scene I think it was pretty true to form that that's that happens you know yeah yeah and like what would have happened if they had hooked up like is there any good outcome from that I don't know like in a no. way, the, unre- the unrequited love leaves it like much more pure in some ways and much more like beautiful. Mm-hmm. I feel yeah. like it would have been possibly a disaster. <laughs> I mean, I think there's some cases where people do feel so strongly about each other that they should upend their lives or they're just that perfect for each other. But like, I don't think this would have been one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, yeah, I really think that that she captured like Sofia Coppola really captured of this sort of situation really well. Which I think is why it resonated so so well with with so many people, and why how it was so popular, you know, or why it yeah. was so popular. Yeah, the nature of an ephemeral relationship. I feel like if they and they had like consummated their relationship, if you will, I feel like it would have cheapened the rest of the movie. I, I'm so glad that they they didn't because they very easily could have, you know, that scene could have been like, you know, her singing in the bathroom, you know, and I think it just would have changed the entire dynamic um, of the movie and it, yeah. it just wouldn't be as special. Like, isn't that interesting, too? Like, I kind of feel that way, but like, it almost seems like it's like a callback to like things like courtly love where like people would like, you know, like have this like non-sexual romantic thing with each other, you know, mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. part of our mm-hmm. culture, but it's like. But like, I don't really have anything against sex or even sometimes like making decisions that might hurt other people if they happen to be the right decisions. But like, I feel the same way too. I feel like it would have cheapened it and I'm not 100% sure why. I think it might be because she is so unformed and it seems like she's grasping at something to make her happy. And so mm. it and maybe and maybe him too, like maybe it just would be a bad situation for both of them mm-hmm. trying to like, mm-hmm. instead of deal with their own shit, like glom mm-hmm. onto someone else. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then you have like the romances that are actually like requited in this movie are John and Charlotte. They must've been really in love at one time and Lydia and Bob, like which he says that they used to have a lot of fun together. And so those relationships don't come out so well in the movie. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you, what do you guys think of John and Lydia? Do you have positive negative feelings towards them? Like, I don't think they're bad people, but you know, talking about that theme of lost in translation, like everybody here. John and Charlotte, Lydia and Bob, they are speaking the same language. 
English, but they're not speaking the same language, man. Like they're all <laughs> in a different mm-hmm. spot. And, um, and those are things as couples that they each need to work out, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, I feel like Bob and Lydia, like, yeah, he's like, we used to have fun. And she's sending him freaking rug samples and, you know, <laughs> passive aggressive. It's just one. hilarious. <laughs> I like the burgundy one. They're all burgundy. <laughs> um, it's brilliant. But, like, uh, you know, unfortunately, they're in a spot where they're like, it's business. Hey, yeah. we need to do this. And don't forget the meal. And don't forget the this. Blah, 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 blah. And that stinks. And you do have to remember to be like, hey we like each other or do we not, you know? And mm-hmm. so that's them. And John and Charlotte, I just think are both super young and don't know what they as individuals want, yeah. let alone as like a couple and oops, like you shouldn't have gotten married. So damn young. <laughs> like, and anyway. Yeah. I found myself sympathizing more with Lydia this time because I was like filling in like the details of what her life must be like and all the things yeah. she's responsible for. But I found myself sympathizing not at all with John still. And yeah. I think yeah. it's because I think it's because the people he hangs out with just seem so frivolous. And like, yes. and I think one of the reasons Charlotte really likes Bob is because he's like the pointedly not frivolous, like in terms of what they talk about when they're together, at least, you know, and like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I think discernment is a thing. Like John doesn't seem very discerning about who he hangs out with. Like he could just be hanging out with anybody. And like, I totally appreciate that in a man, like somebody who kind of has like, you know, he doesn't want to hang out with just anybody. Like that's probably how I ended up, ended up married to an introvert. So. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also don't like that John, like he, he dismisses Charlotte a lot, you know, he's like, baby, stop smoking. It's not good for you. She's like, I like it. And I'm going to do it if I want to. Yet he has no interest in her little scarf that she knit and has no opinion about it. And then he gets down on her for like being smart (laughs) and intelligent and like, why do you got to be so above everybody? And it's like, you know, we're like, I think that Charlotte and Bob would have both had a laugh about how, uh, is it Kelly, Uh, you know, chose a man's name as her, you know, code name, you know, like that would have been like where he's john's like what are you gonna make fun of people for and why do you, you know like and that's funny too because i don't like to be like i used to be more snotty when i was younger like if you want to put it that way like i used to be a little bit more like oh they didn't know that and i'm less like that now but i'm still irritated by john for some reason i don't know maybe, yeah. it's, that, maybe it's that dj guy with the fat beats i could not deal with him. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I, I feel the same way i feel yeah. the same way about john like And I think there's even an interesting parallel that's established. I mean, or like it's more of a contrast where there's that scene where John uh, just, he's kind of like swayed by Kelly, I suppose. And he's like totally into her, you know? And then later on when Bob is saying goodbye, there's that scene where this, you know, beautiful, like very well-dressed lady comes up to him and she's like, Oh, Mm. what are you doing here? And he's like, you know what? I got to go right now. And he goes to talk yeah. to Charlotte. And so there's, yeah, that, that scene I thought was really beautiful. He, that, he's not like swayed by fame or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Attention. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. So do you guys like, uh, what do you think would happen to these characters in the future? Do you think their marriages are going to work out? John and Charlotte, do they stay together? Yes or no? No, no, probably not. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't think so either. I think we're we're giving that a unanimous no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. How about Bob and Lydia? Are they going to work out? Are they going to pull through? I mean, he did just make two million dollars, so <laughs> that <laughs> obviously he's he's making that money for the fam. So I'm pretty sure he's he's in it. Oh man, I I'm rooting for them. I hope so. I and they but they both got to do a lot of work. You yeah. know, yeah. they need to go to couples counseling. They like do. Scott. They yeah. do. Yeah, I could see him like ending up being like a like a like a cheater. And like her, them just like staying together, and mm. him going off and having like little affairs. Because obviously he has nothing against adultery, because he did sleep with a lounge singer. I think that kind of threw me off too, because it's like it's not like this was like against his morals or anything to not mm. um, hook up physically with with Charlotte. It was it just happened to be that situation. So you know, obviously he's not the best husband in the world if they you know had agreed that they wouldn't be yeah that they would be faithful to each other so yeah yeah i guess we don't know they might have an agreement but i think like yeah that, they you know, could that was yeah, pretty rare in the 2003 but yeah 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 it's possible yeah so what might, i think women know a lot of times you know. so so what do you guys think might happen if charlotte and bob meet in the future ever met in the future like happen to run into each other I kind of have this like fantasy because, you know, there is a moment when he mentions like, oh, I'm here doing this, this, um, these ads when I could be like doing a play, which is like, I guess what he really loves is acting, right? I kind of have this fantasy that like in the future, like he goes, is like doing like a Broadway play or something and she goes to it. I don't know. And then they like, Mm. they like see each other again because he's like doing like what he loves and she's like in the audience and they see each other and. I don't because she's from New York, you know. Oh my god, there you go. Uh, There's the sequel found in translation. (laughs) 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 Oh my god, yes. Somebody tall, Sophia Coppola. (laughs) I I, playing off of that, I can okay. I was thinking, I'm like, there's a possibility that you know they could meet up again, just as you've described, but I don't think they would like meet and hook up and like then they would live happily ever after. I think that it might even be um, disappointing, like because mm-hmm. like Charlotte has grown so much and, you know, I'm just thinking about if in he terms really, of her. But if he really cared about her, then maybe mm-hmm. that would give him some kind of joy, you know, that she's like, oh, I got out of that marriage. And yeah. Now I'm- and now I'm do- sure, sure. But like, I don't know. I wouldn't. I don't know. Or it could be really disappointing. Yeah. yeah. I could feel that too. She writes the play and then Bob stars in it. Sorry. <laughs> oh, good one. Yes. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. He did tell her to be a writer. Yeah. And Lydia has left him and taken up pottery and gotten together <laughs> with a different actor. Wow. No, a lawyer. A lawyer. Okay, a lawyer. That's good too. Okay. There we go. We've got the no sequel. No more actors. We're Get ready. We're ready for the sequel. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it I feel like it would be better than on the rocks, honestly. So. <laughs> okay, yeah. so I think we can we can probably actually skip the part about expat culture because we've talked about it a little bit already, unless anybody wants to super add anything. But I think this movie did do a good job showing some things about expat culture, even though these are more like travelers rather than long term yeah. expats. Yeah. yeah, like I was a little confused as to how long Charlotte had been there and how long she was staying because i don't know if they really ever said 
I feel like they said a couple weeks at one point, but I'm not 100% mm. positive. I can't say for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's still pronouncing Fukuoka, Fukuoka, so it can't be that long. <laughs> like, I'd, li- I'd, I'd like to see him buy one ticket for Fukuoka and see where he ends up. <laughs> oh, that's good. Anyway, yeah. Like, yeah, but as an expat, like, I totally related to some things like watching strange TV shows and just being fascinated by it. And like, oh, yeah, battling the machines, like when he's working with that exercise equipment. So I didn't do that. But like, I told we had some toilet battles where like, we (laughs) pressed the bidet button by accident instead of the flush button. And yeah, that was not fun. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like the water water shoots up at you. Yeah. 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 And and then washing machine, trying to translate your washing machine instructions is always fun. But like what I found not relatable was like, I was such a nerd. I walked around with my dictionary all the time and I was always trying my best to communicate in the language. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. so I did, I found that unrelatable that they're just going places and he's not even like biru dozo. Right. That's like the easiest thing to do to order beer. He's just like two beers. He did stick up two fingers. I'll give him that. What do you think Luna? Mm, Yeah. I feel like there could have been more of an effort. And I don't know, it's, it's, and I think it brings us to a little bit of a point about maybe like the characters, I don't know, maybe not appreciating um, things Mm. enough, like what they have, because I mean, I know they're both in a very difficult situation, but it's like, come on, you're also staying at a five star luxury hotel. You got time and money to go visit these different (laughs) places. It's like, and you, you could, you know, try a little bit but you know that's just me well that that gets me into my actually the next theme of the movie which i think this is not a stated theme but i think that culture shock and alienation kind of go together Mm -hmm. and i think like to me like i read part of their behavior this time is going through culture shock and um i'm just going to really quickly explain like what culture shock is like like it's like kind of I don't know if it's an official medical term, but it's definitely like a term that has like an understanding like you'll see on websites about traveling abroad. So there are different stages of culture shock. You have your initial euphoria or honeymoon period where you're like really into the culture and all the differences. Then you have an irritability and hostility period, which can result in people withdraw- withdrawing, like staying in their hotel room instead of going out or like uh, aggression even. And then you've got your gradual adjustment period where you learn to interpret the cultural cues and then the adaptation phase when you've been there a while, usually. And that, and then you may experience reverse culture shock when you return home, which I definitely experienced when I came back to the U.S. from Korea. It took a while to adjust to being back here. And like, so these characters are kind of, they might just be this way for other reasons, but they're experiencing symptoms of culture shock, which include fatigue, hyper irritability, depression, anxiety, feeling ill, negative feelings towards your host culture. That's a big one. And self-doubt. And like, I just want to say I had culture shock when I did my exchange program as a high school student in Japan. And I would have been like really upset at myself if I didn't know what culture shock was. They told us about the possibility because I started just feeling really angry and um, hostile towards Japanese culture at a certain point. And like, I felt I would have felt really shitty about myself. I did feel a little guilty already, but I would have felt really bad about myself if I didn't know that culture shock was a thing. But it's like pretty natural when you're adjusting, when you're doing this work of getting used to a foreign culture that's much different than yours, to have some of these experiences. And I had the depression of culture shock too for a while. I had some withdrawal. And yeah, I had a little bit in Korea too, but it was a little less so. And maybe it's because I had that previous experience in Japan. I don't know. 
But what do you think? Do you guys think that, do you agree that this could be a factor or like that the movie could be portraying it, whether consciously or unconsciously? Or do you think that's just the way they are? I think, I think it definitely comes into play. Um, And also because we have to consider that they're not getting much sleep too. And so just that alone, I mean, if you go without sleep, it can really have some serious effects on your uh, mental and emotional health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that Sofia Coppola, having already spent a bunch of time in Japan and then like prior to filming, like pre-production and all that, I think that in trying to capture feelings of how she had felt there, um, I think, and I like to hope that she was more sensitive than just being like a, you know, kind of like a touristy jerk about stuff, (laughs) you know, so because it didn't feel malicious, you know. Mm -mm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think it just really captures, I think this movie more than any other captures the experiences I had when I did have culture shock. Like, I can't think of another movie that really, like the the feeling of looking over this beautiful city and you're sitting in a window all by yourself. You could be out doing any number of things, but like for some reason you can't handle it. Mm -hmm. Like I, I resonated with that very much. I think there is something to say as well about like uh, having a language barrier. I I've had a lot of experiences where you're trying to communicate in uh you know a second language to your own and you can kind of get the basics down um you know like you can feed yourself or you can get directions but you can't really express like deep emotions mm-hmm. and I felt I felt like that's when I became like the most depressed mm-hmm. is because I couldn't I was like kind of regulated to just being like almost like infantile where I could kind of like get my very basic needs met but anything beyond that like I couldn't express myself good enough. And I, that's when I would end up becoming like really depressed. Yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily what these characters are going through, but. Um, oh, I think that could be a huge part of thing. I think, and I think that's why a lot of expats, one of the reasons a lot of expats gravitate towards each other in mm-hmm. other cultures. Absolutely. Like, yeah. It's not that they don't like the other culture. It's that, like, sometimes you need to be able to talk about, you know, deeper things that you might not have the language for, or just like mm-hmm. cultural references that, you know, are familiar to everybody. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So given this, um, so there's been a number of criticisms of the film, some of which I had read, others of which I was unaware of. Interestingly enough, at the time of the release of Lost in Translation, a group called Asian Media Watch actively campaigned against the film winning awards. And I just want to read their statement because I think it's important that we kind of contend with what they're saying. The group feels that the film dehumanizes the Japanese people by portraying them as a collection of shallow stereotypes who are treated with disregard and disdain. The film has no meaningful Japanese roles, nor is there any significant dialogue between the main characters and the Japanese. Such portrayals perpetuate negative stereotypes and attitudes that are harmful to Asian Americans in the U.S., where a significant minority of Americans already have negative attitudes towards Asians. So, like... Definitely, I think it's important to address this, especially like we're still dealing with anti-Asian racism in the United States, maybe even more anti-Asian racism, I don't know, at this point in time. And yeah, I just wanted to think about what is your guys' impression of looking at that today? Or do you think there are things that, do you think there are fair criticisms? Do you think that, I'll just leave it open. And then I have a lot to say too. I mean, sometimes I wonder if, you know, the story is is so much about charlotte and and bob if this this could have taken place anywhere really i i love that it takes place in tokyo and in japan but the like the universal theme 
could have been anywhere. So I feel like those same stereotypes, not the exact same ones, but like the almost the caricatures of a different culture could have been any culture. It could have been Italy. It could have been um, Ecuador. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where you feel isolated. It, and those stereotypes could have played out in a different way. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah like I, I, I feel I, like it shouldn't have been taken so... Uh, personally but i do understand why it would be but i don't think that that's what that was trying to say you know i agree with you that the function of the story is kind of what is causing a lot of these problems you know Hmm. like because it's not supposed to be a story about two people adapting well to a foreign culture and making lots of friends it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be a, a story about two people not adapting at all well to a foreign culture and feeling isolated from everybody but each other so in that case, it's really hard. It would have been a very different movie if it had, if it had avoided some of the things it's criticized for, especially in terms of like um, no meaningful Japanese roles. I totally agree with you. There's no, the, with the critic critique of that, but it would be just like a different film. And yeah, yes. in that, in that term. So that part, I, I definitely think it's just wouldn't be the same film, but some of the other stuff about perpetuating stereotypes, we'll get into that a little bit later. I, I want to hear more about what you and uh, Sophia, you and Luna think first though, before moving on to that. So I think, yeah, there is a clear lack of Japanese representation, um, and it's something we could discuss more. But um, I think to say that, and this is part of their quote, that the film dehumanizes the Japanese people, I think I wouldn't go so far because, you know, then again, you know, they're focusing on certain characters, which are, you know, very much like caricatures. But then you also have like the contrast of, like the Ikebana lady who is so sweet mm. and she invites her in. She's welcoming her. There's the mm. the elderly person in the hospital waiting room trying to, you know, bridge yeah. through this communication. And so it's like you see so much uh, also love and kindness and, uh, I don't know, gratitude, I feel, as yeah. well. There's also another separate issue, though, is the stereotypes issue. And um, I think sometimes the jokes are just like accurate reflections of cultural differences, like the exercise machine joke or like the director directing the commercial joke. Like, but like sometimes I do think it gets into like a little bit of a stereotype zone. And I want to play a clip for you guys of like the one that I think is particularly the most egregious, which I think might have caused legitimate offense Right, really quick. Sorry, and the context for this is Charlotte is showing an injured foot to Bob at a sushi restaurant. You either go to a doctor or you leave it here. <laughs> He's smiling. You like that idea? See, they love black toe over in this country. <laughs> you got a sharp knife? Gotta be, you know, this country, somebody's got to prefer black toe. Uh, black toe. Or we should probably hang around until someone orders it. Hey, what's with the straight face? Yeah, that didn't yeah. play well for me. Like in mm-hmm. no, right. I know. <laughs> yes. Or, or after living in Asia, for that matter. Like yeah. I think, like after living in Asia, it's just like yeah, like it's it's like the L and R thing. It's like it's basically just Americans not understanding that other languages have different sounds than we have. And that like, if you like they're that Luna, am I correct to say that they're, they have a sound that's kind of between L and R basically, but not two separate phonemes. That's what I read. Yeah. So it's like they have Japanese speakers will apparently have a difficult time discerning the difference between the um, English L and R because those sounds don't exist really as those sounds in their language. The same way that like, if you're studying another language, you might not know one of the phonemes in that language, one of the Mm -hmm. specific sounds. Like I've been studying German for a while and I can't 
the word N-I-C-H-T-S, nichts. I can't get the T and the S to go, the C-H-T and the S to all go together well. It doesn't happen. You know what I'm saying? Some people can't roll their R's in Spanish. So Mm -hmm. it's like to make the joke, to have it be like once or twice where this causes a misunderstanding, okay. But this scene was just like a little bit like, uh, Yeah. Yeah. uh, And I heard that Murray actually was like ad-libbing that part. I read that a few places that he ad it just said, make Charlotte laugh. And that he ad-libbed that section. But I mean, as the director, she still has control what she decides to put in her movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other thing, when you're the uh, white Westerner in a foreign culture, you will sometimes experience like certain privileges, like because white Westerners who speak English still have a lot of privilege in that context. But you will also 100% get made fun of by Koreans or Japanese people, even if it's in a really subtle way for the way you speak. And the way you look, mm-hmm. I remember my snort laugh. Oh my God. I made the mistake of like laughing at my students in my academy and they called me pig teacher for a while because of it. Oh. <laughs> but like you will completely also be the butt of the joke. So it's, it's, and like the, their impressions of like how much people weigh are ridiculous, like in Korea. Mm-hmm. Like they think like somebody who's pretty normal weight here is just like ridiculously fat. And, and there's definitely racism in other countries too. Like yeah. my, like in Korea, I encountered racism towards. Japanese people because of obviously their very bad history together um, and towards Southeast Asian people and then towards black Americans. Like, so it's kind of like, I think sometimes we act as if like white Westerners are like have the monopoly on racism when that's, or stereotypes or making fun of people when that's not really the case either. Anyway. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. we've got this other criticism that's more recent from Ingu Kang. So Ingu Kang is a commentator who does a lot of uh, TV and movie writing and she wrote in mtvnews.com and some of her criticisms, absolutely. I see like a lot of validity in it. She was really upset by the LR jokes, just like we mentioned just now and the lip my stocking scene. And she was also upset uh, about the lack of meaningful representation, but then some of her stuff I thought was a little unfair. Another criticism she had was Coppola's camera also runs through the most banal images possible of Japanese-ness geishas, kimonos, Buddhist temples, neon-dominated cityscapes, pachinko parlors, Mount Fuji, flower arrangements. And like this criticism I felt was unfair in several ways. Because first of all, I don't believe there was a geisha in there. It was listed, it said even Focus Features said it's a traditional wedding party that Charlotte sees, not a geisha. Yeah. Which honestly, like that's on Ingu Kang for deciding that the traditional wedding party is a geisha. Um, like it didn't look anything like a geisha to me. I've read about several books about geisha. And the other thing is, like, when you're a tourist, you will go and seek out, like, these traditional, Mm -hmm. you know, you will seek out what's unique about the place you're visiting. You're not going to go there. Well, hopefully you're not going to go there and just sit in the McDonald's. Hopefully you're going to go there and see, like, what there is to see that's beautiful. And these are essentially tourists in this film. And, yeah, I don't know. So I thought that was a little. And the neon-dominated cityscapes, there's a lot of neon in East Asia if you're in a city. Like, Mm. Like, that's life. And, like, it's beautiful. Yeah. Like, I think. Totally. And then finally, like she said, um, quote, the dismissal of contemporary Japanese culture is imitative and clueless as parodying American culture without realizing what the words mean or why they're impactful. She says a Japanese man goes by Charlie Brown, but he himself doesn't know why. And like, that's also not factually true about the film. The character does say that people think he looks like Charlie Brown and Snoopy. He knows the reference. So it's like it's like I think that criticism was like not very careful in some parts. Yeah, that's what I have to say about Ingu Kang. What do you guys, anything more to add? 
It sounds like this person was just mad that Sofia Coppola didn't make a different movie. You know? I mean, yeah. I mean, this was also in an article about her critique of The Beguiled. So mm. like Sophia mentioned oh. earlier, I haven't looked too much into The Beguiled, but there was critique of that movie being whitewashed. I guess there had been an African- like Yeah, I guess there had been an African-American character in the book or something that wasn't in the movie, but I haven't seen, I don't know enough about it to comment more mm. than that. So I think it was like, yeah, it, yeah. But like, I really do think there is an under, like that black toe scene was- a little bit egregious in my opinion. So I think there's some, you can pull back sometimes if you're a director and not go like full into the stereotype. And I also think like, I just wanted to mention like, just with like with crazy rich Asians, there were like a lot of critiques that we mentioned about how they didn't portray the Southeast Asian characters in enough diversity and richness. I think it's really in some ways a function of there just not being enough Asian representation yet in Western movies to where this won't become an issue. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there needs to be a more wider, larger assortment of Asian characters before stereotypes won't stick out so much. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I agree. Representation is important. And so, and I I think thankfully things are, are changing for the better. Yeah. So at least we're celebrating our small victories um, in that regard. And we're going to drop all these different articles with the critiques of the film in the show notes, including a couple ones we didn't have time to go over. So you can see, you can decide for yourself what you think about it. Okay. And then finally, we're going to get to our last two sections, which is first of all, Luna is going to give us some Japan travel recommendations from her experience. And then we'll do our double feature recommendations. So Luna, where do you think people should go in Tokyo and the surrounding areas that was not shown in the film? Okay. So one place that I really like is Meiji Jingu. It's a very famous shrine right in the heart of Tokyo. It's actually right next to Shibuya, uh, which is one of the places shown in the film. So you wouldn't have to go too far uh, to enjoy not only this beautiful shrine, but also the beautiful forested area that surrounds it. Um, So if you need a break from the busy energy of the city, I feel like this would be a great place to visit. You know, you can really feel refreshed. And then another place that I really like that wasn't shown uh, is Sensoji Temple. It's actually Tokyo's oldest Buddhist temple. It dates back from the 7th century. And um, it's very bright and colorful. It's located in Asakusa, which is um, an interesting neighborhood. And the outer gate of the temple is called Kaminarimon, uh, or Thunder Gate. And it's very iconic, so you'll see it in a lot of uh, images. Also, I really like it because, you know, there's a whole street leading to the temple, and it's lined with vendors selling snacks and traditional souvenirs. So that's a really good place to stop by and and check yeah. out. Then I'd say if you want to go on a little day trip, I recommend going to Kamakura, which was once the capital of Japan. It's like this, you know, very pleasant seaside town. Um, and because it was once the capital, it has a large concentration of temples and shrines. Um, you know, a lot of people like to visit Kamakura, so it can be a little bit busy. But I think it makes for a really relaxing day trip from Tokyo. It takes about an hour or so by train. And uh, you can actually go and see the statue of the great Buddha at Kotokuin Temple. It's uh, really cool. <laughs> I also have a museum re- recommendation, which is the Ghibli Museum in Mitaka. Uh, so this is actually, I don't know if uh, our listeners are familiar with Studio Ghibli, but this is a museum in suburban Tokyo. 
It's a good place to take children, uh, but they can be enjoyed by people of all ages. So you can learn about the history, the art, and the craft and animation, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. And um, although reservations are required, uh, they're not that difficult to get. Um, so, yeah, it would be a good place to go. And if you want something that's, you know, a bit different and more like the neon lights of Tokyo, there's also um, Team Lab Borderless, which is a digital art museum um, in the city where you can basically explore freely and you can interact with different installations. And it has like all these beautiful colors. So I think it would be really enjoyable for somebody who likes the visuals in Lost in Translation. Yeah, I think I heard of this place. Yeah, it sounded really cool. Yeah. 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 And is that yours or did somebody else add that? That's mine. Because <laughs> I was, I have this link to these like two women. It's like their personal blog and they took a trip to Japan and they go to all these textile and places and temples. And um, I would go, if I were going to Japan, I would seek out all the museums or galleries or whatever Um regarding uh sashiko it's a japanese style of embroidery and it's beautiful and i am obsessed and um i put that down sashiko forever because <laughs> <Nice. laughs> I'm, I'm a geek that way I'm a yeah. <laughs> nice. over textiles yes so now we're now we're going to get into our double feature recommendations we take turns um in the order that were listed there and each give one at a time so my first double feature recommendation would be Ghost World from 2001, because it's another movie where Scarlett Johansson's playing someone who's a little bit um, like alienated from her surroundings, although less so than the other character in the movie Enid. But I also just love that movie. And it's like just a very early 2000s movie. So Ghost World and Lost in Translation, that would be a great double feature, in my opinion. One of my double feature recommendations um, is Once. It takes place in Ireland. Um, it was very popular. It's about these two, uh, you know, street musicians who kind of connect and make an album and and then they part ways. So in that, um, you know, people connecting and kind of the same ending and, and has the same vibe. So I thought that would make an interesting double feature. My double feature recommendation is actually Wong Kar Wai's 2000 movie, In the Mood for Love. And uh, I just saw a lot of parallels between this movie and Lost in Translation. There's a lot of beautiful, beautiful, rich visuals with uh, night scenes. In the Mood for Love, it happens to be Hong Kong as opposed to Tokyo. Um, And you also have two people who are uh, coming together who are both in uh, committed relationships but they still develop uh, an intimate uh, sort of relationship. So cool. Yeah. I still haven't seen that surprise. Like for some criteria, yeah. do it. <laughs> Especially because it. it's been referenced in the past two movies we've, re- we've talked about. That's so. right. The film that I chose is the Virgin suicides. It's um, Sophia Coppola's first feature film. Um, I, I just, I do really like her work and I, actually I think the Virgin Suicides is my favorite movie that she did. Yeah. It's got a great cast. It's visually beautiful. It's a great story. It's haunting. Yeah. Okay. And then my second choice would be Rushmore, which is from 1998 and Wes Anderson film starring Bill Murray. 
Well, that's one of the stars. And it's, I choose it because Bill, it's Bill, the first movie where I remember Bill Murray being very serious and kind of like uh, bored with life full of ennui. It might not be the first one where he did that like whole thing, but it's the one that I remember. And I think it would be also great with Lost in Translation. Okay, my second recommendation is called Tokyo! Exclamation point. Um, and it's a, tri- it's a triptych. Um, it's like three shorter films done by three different directors. Um, and I, truth, okay, full disclosure, I've not seen the first two. It's the third one that I believe is just also called Tokyo. Um, it's a very interesting story of uh, uh, kind of a recluse um, and, and an earthquake and a delivery girl and mm. um, wanting to see her again and um, going, going for it. It's pretty cool. Mm. Intriguing. And then Luna, it looks oh, like you just I, had the one and Serena, you've got another one. Yeah. Yeah. I have another one. Um, I chose um, the movie her that's directed by Spike Jones. I was, I just kept on reading a lot of how lost in translation was um, the movie. Sofia Coppola was making during the demise of her marriage to Spike Jones mm-hmm. and that her was his take on it or his version of it and that there were a lot of representations of what was going on in their marriages in both movies so i thought that was really interesting i thought i think it's really interesting that they're both really interesting and wonderful filmmakers and that they would you know choose these themes and that both movies were really were really great so i thought those would be good to watch together and then I'm just going to do one more of mine. Um, I had four, but I'll just do one more. Um, my last recommendation will be Paris Can Wait, which is a 2016 film directed by Francis Ford Coppola's wife, Eleanor Coppola. And it was, she had directed some documentary stuff before, but that's her first narrative film. And it's another travel story um, about uh, a, a wife of a Hollywood director, <laughs> maybe autobiographical, we don't know, traveling with one of his kind of business associates through the French countryside on the way to Paris. And there's a lot of food in this movie. So people who like movies with food will really enjoy it. Stars uh, Diane Lane. And I forget what the man's name was, but yeah, Diane Lane's in it. So it's it's kind of a rom-com also. Okay. And I'll also do just one more uh, recommendation. It's called Departures. It's also a Japanese film and it's so beautiful. The main character, he uh, plays the cello in an orchestra in the city and he gets fired. So he and his wife go back to, um, their hometown so they're so it's a it's a feeling of like smaller town in japan which you know complete opposite of uh lost in translations which is so much of tokyo and big city and he needs to find another job and he sees an ad um and he thinks it's one thing but when he gets there it winds up being kind of like what we would call an undertaker it was it was it's beautiful you know themes of life and death and and I love um, kind of small town Japan being represented. It was very cool. Mm-hmm. Beautiful film. So guys, like I want to thank everybody for just like the uh, preparation you did for this episode and all the interesting discussions. And I really want to thank you for joining us today, Luna. Like, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. It was really nice chatting with you. And um, thanks everyone in the audience for listening. And please remember still to rate, review, and subscribe to every rom-com on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to join us next week as we continue the travel series with the 1984 Kathleen Turner, Michael Douglas movie, Romancing the Stone.
Talk to you next time, friends. Can't wait. Bye. Bye. Bye.